Welcome back to 42 to Doomsday, Australia's longest-running Doctor Who podcast. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And we are Doctor Who Podcasting World's Delta Variant Force. We are again broadcasting almost live from this rather echoey chamber from the never-ending Victorian lockdown. And as 2021 continues to kick us in the balls just like 2020, let's hit the rewind button and go back 40 years when Donkey Kong reigned supreme in the video arcades, Space Shuttle Columbia reached for the stars, and ABBA released new material. Who says history never repeats? And as Guy Lambert says... I won't bombard you with comments as I listen to your long history of shows, but I wanted to say how much I've enjoyed the drag from the archives. So many crazy memories of rumours and fan rage. They made me laugh so much, especially when you laugh too. So without further ado, let's drag ourselves through 1981. Mark! Long time no speak to. How are you, mate? Good, buddy. How are you, sir? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I just want to apologise in advance if the sound quality of my end of the podcast is slightly echoey. I have decamped to my daughter's uh, dance studio, so it's a little bit echoey in here. But anyway, uh, if you see me doing a uh, jeté uh, or a pirouette, you'll know what's going on. Um, otherwise, uh, I'm fine, Mark. Uh, lockdown, as we sort of I intimated in the, uh, the intro. Yeah. Uh, once again, Victoria... We've given up on uh, life, <laughs> on uh, panning it down to zero. We've just got to, we're just going to let the let the floodgates open shortly once we all get vaccinated. Well, you know, you might as well keep going, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and yourself, how have you been? Good. Um, yes, I'm recording in a different location. I'm in the 42 to Doomsday Mobile Recording Studio, so uh, I'm decamped in the car because our dog is very noisy barking inside. So <laughs> hopefully you won't pick up anything, and hopefully I've worked out how this mic actually works as well. This new Yeti mic that I've got. Uh, self-funded of course Rob but uh, yeah of course no Patreon have you seen uh, anything Doctor Who related uh, recently today something came up on the uh, on the old feeds the radio clickbait said Christopher Eccleston says it's very doubtful he will return to Doctor Who on television during a Q&A as part of Dragon Con Eccleston explained why a 60th anniversary was doubtful saying my relationship with the BBC over Doctor Who has not healed he added I left because my relationship with Russell T Davis producers Julie Gardner and Phil Collinson completely broke down during the shooting of the first series obviously he's still carrying a lot of baggage 15 or 16 years later regarding what happened on the series one thing that confuses me is that he still has done work for the BBC since then and those three individuals have left the program so why still be carrying a bit of a grudge but like kevin bartlett you know he said i'm never going to return to richmond while the board members who sacked me were there mm. he held out for 30 years until all those guys left and then he came back they've all gone in the same breath though eccleston saying you know i'm just doing big finish for the money which is fine now if the bbc are going to do a 60th and that's probably the next point we'll get to it, surely his grudge is so great that he wouldn't take any money off offered from the bbc to reprise his role as doctor who in a potential special i find that a bit uh, extraordinary. I think his anger, regardless of whether you know those three people you named are out, I think his anger relates more to the memory of his treatment than anything else. Yeah, we you know he's worked for the BBC since, but I, I think he has that association with Doctor Who, leaving him less than happy with how he was treated, especially um, how a, a statement that was attributed to him, which he had nothing to do with, was you know put out um, shortly after uh, the announcement of his uh, departure. Um, he just doesn't it, it, for, for him television and Doctor Who and those memories are obviously sufficiently bad for him not to want to have to do anything 
with the TV show itself, um, you know, it, it is a bit strange. I mean, you know, you're a television actor, a movie actor. If you're offered an opportunity to, you know, work, especially in, you know, difficult times such as, you know, the UK TV industry has had over the last couple of years, you'd think you'd, you'd put that aside, that sort of... I mean, I, I'm a legendary hater and even I have mellowed in recent years um, uh, to the extent where, you know, certain things that I loathed, I've sort of just had to come to an acceptance. But it is strange that he, you know... He, um, those people who he associates most strongly with what, how he, how badly he was treated, have gone, um, and yet he is not willing to go back to the program, which he professes to, you know, he enjoyed his time. He loves the fans. He's willing to do something as obscure as, no offense, Big Finish, but as Big Finish, uh, and yet he won't go back to the, you know, to help celebrate uh, the show that, you know, his year helped, you know, drag over this 50th and 60th, you know, year line as a, in terms of getting to those points. So. Look, you know, uh, no one's inside anyone else's head, so it's hard to say what his true feelings are, um, but uh, or true reasons are. But if he doesn't want to do it, well, that's a pity. But you know, we, you, you, no one can be forced to you know take up a role if they don't want to. And as I put on Twitter a while ago, hashtag McGanza man. Well, now this moves on to the second thing uh, that we're going to talk about. It, you know, the the possibility of a 60th anniversary special. Now, um, I'm not 100 percent sure if anything has been said since. Uh, the you know the announcement of Chibnall and Whitaker leaving, and the structure of the next year or two in terms of the season this year and then specials next year, and then there's the episode to help celebrate the BBC's hundredth birthday. Have we heard anything about a potential sixtieth anniversary show, Mark? Hold it there, Parcells. Before we drag our way through 1981, we have time-scooped our future selves to discuss the news that the BBC is dragging from its own archive and its new showrunner is, in fact, the old one. Future Rob, how are you, sir? Rob is much, much better than uh, past Rob. And uh, as you can hear, the sound quality that I'm exhibiting today is much, much better than the one that you're going to be experiencing in the actual episode that you should be listening to. Apologies for that. I am feeling much, much better. I've just watched a grand final and ripping and roaring, ready to go to talk about Russell T Davies resurrecting himself. Before we sort of go into our reactions, we're just going to give a bit of an overview in terms of what we've been hearing for the last few months. Sort of walk through a bit of a timeline together of some of the uh, the events that sort of led up to this announcement. Is that right, Rob? That is right, Mark. Are you saying that we have a source from within, well, at least the BBC or somewhere? Several sources of the HP and tomato variety, of course. <laughs> and as with any piece of uh, information, obviously, it's subject to change and what our source actually really knows. But we thought we'd share with you what we understand to be true then we'll go into our reactions of the news and everything like that so rob has basically i've been sending him all these emails and rob has put together a bit of a timeline rob let's just go through it well basically as everyone that would know uh, the bbc announced saturday morning australian time that russell t davies uh, was returning to the role of the showrunner uh, from the 60th anniversary onwards and that bad wolf a tv a production house set up by uh, julie gardner and uh, jane tranter would be the uh, the organization through which they would be uh, making these new episodes and new and new series but we understand that these things sort of don't drop out of the clear blue sky, obviously. So negotiations had been going on for some time this year, uh, certainly up until at least July, in terms of who would be doing what and when and uh, who had, would have responsibility, uh, I suppose, in terms of you know casting the new doctor and the sort of the shape of the new regime, you know, what when they would come on board 
and what the next, I don't know, three to five years would look like. Would that be about right, Mark? So it sounds like uh, RTD had pitched to the BBC about uh, doing the 60th anniversary as his first production and then would be the showrunner for the next five years, uh, delivering uh, three full seasons with equal breaks between them. And those gap years would actually entail uh, two new spin-offs. So the first gap year would have a adult Doctor Who spin-off in a, a similar vein as uh, Torchwood. The second spin-off would be a kiddie version, sort of in the same vein as uh, the Sarah Jane adventures as well. So essentially, it just sort of does play into the rumours that a Doctor Who multiverse was being uh, set up. Basically, it's an RTD pitch to, to the BBC so that I can essentially bail you out of the mess, resurrect the show, have a couple of gap years, but have those gap years filled with other Doctor Who spin-offs. But also, in terms terms of the merchandising obviously it's in a rut new series sales are down and what will happen with the rtd new series is that a whole lot of van will be produced to accompany the dvd set for, to make those sales more attractive so everything will have commentaries everything will have behind the scenes like so basically the people clamoring for doctor who confidential you're not going to see it on tv but it will be on the dvds uh, of the new approach going forward and we have to stress that's our understanding from our sources obviously what happens in between and fruition many is the slip betwixt cup and lip as the goes. And then just putting my own interpretation of what information we've been given, Mark, it would seem to me that if RTD is going to, you know, follow the sort of template that he had when he was in charge of, you know, the main show, then something Torchwood-esque, and then something for the for the kids or the younger adults, I, I don't, know, don't know necessarily that they would, you know, fill a gap here as such. You can see them sort of running concurrently, as was the case previously. And you can see that sort of template with what Disney is doing with their Marvel TV shows, where you can have multiple series sort of running either concurrently or one after the other mm. um not necessarily one filling a gap year because i mean you'd have first year of doctor who then the torchwood style show and then the second year of doctor who and then the sarah jane adventure type show and then the third year of doctor who i don't think that necessarily works so maybe there's something off with the rumor in that regard but i can see something more concurrent uh, as long as there's the money there to do it interestingly enough is that after his uh five years are up he'd step down as, as a showrunner but obviously would be the um, executive producer or creative consultant, uh, Kevin Feige, from a Marvel perspective. But what would happen is that um, those two spin-off shows would also be an audition for um, those executive producers on those shows, whichever one I suppose is the most successful. They would then take over the series post-Russell uh, going in whatever year that is, <laughs> but yeah, five years, well, you know, five years time. It could be even longer than five years. I mean, uh, is, the, is the clock ticking from now in terms of five years or is the, does the clock begin on the 60th anniversary? Because Davies is 58 at the moment. Mm. If we wait another couple of years, he's 60 and then five years from that, he's 65. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, once you hit 65, you punch a ticket and that's game over. Um, people are working longer and talented people are working longer as well. So uh, it'd be interesting to see that timeline there. Uh, in terms of uh, how long he, you know, when, when this all begins. And do we understand, Mark, from our, you know, sources that greater burden of the creative decision-making is on Bad Wolf TV, uh, the production house? Is that is that right? Is that, has the BBC given up a lot of control in terms of doing this? Yes, that includes casting decisions as well. But they have given, the BBC has given up a lot of their control on the series to uh, essentially outsource it to a different production company. But obviously there are many caveats of that. And of course, that'll probably be a reduced financial return for the BBC as well, because they'll be basically buying it from an external company and uh, mm. residuals probably... Uh, less return to the organisation. I wonder how much of the ownership they've given up, have they diluted their ownership of the intellectual property or have they merely said, well, 
we own it whole as bowlers, but we are prepared to contract it out to you, uh, Bad Wolf, for the next you know five to seven years, and you get a share of the profits, we get a share of the profits, and if you've got uh, a third party, you know, uh, handing or, or loaning you money, buying an equity, uh, it works that way. Potentially. I mean, you just mentioned third party. There's indication that HBO are involved in terms yes. of this this deal as well. Yes. So it wasn't just a, a, a bad wolf production. It obviously has um, third party, as you just said. Uh, Which makes sense. I mean, mm. if you're talking about three different series running either concurrently or consecutively, mm. it's a huge uh, financial outlay to be able to do that you know from one production company i mean i'm sure the bbc would put in their own money uh, as well but i think that the greater burden of the financial uh, aspect of it would, would fall onto a bad wolf and um, you'd, you'd want to sort of uh, lay off some of that to, to another organization and get some money coming in to, to, to assist it all you know going forward do our sources indicate whether there is a 14th doctor either has been decided on or is it, is it still a, an ongoing or even a, a process that hasn't been hasn't begun that's the the million dollar question at the moment isn't it really uh a comment i heard was that uh the choice will be universally accepted mm. that's a quote that's flying around uh and whether it's a man or a woman we, we don't know in terms of the the 60th anniversary obviously that is happening which is great news the pitch that uh, russell is proposing for that story was essentially the one he actually proposed to moffat for the 50th but then moffat did his thing so essentially that the pitch that uh, rtd then uh for the 50th is going to be reused for the 60th obviously matt smith and david Tennant will be involved and that's what we understand based on you know what our sources have said just putting my own interpretation on that if i'm allowed to i'm not 100 percent sure that necessarily russell russell my mate russell <laughs> davies is recycling necessarily a pitch that he gave for the 50th anniversary because i would have thought that moffat would have just said look i'm going to go with my own thing and not listen to anyone but Regardless, obviously, the way that Davies ran the show when he was in charge, season-long, you know, story arcs, despite some criticism for it, that, you know, that he tended to repeat himself in terms of his approach, that did work. So you can imagine they're doing, again, something similar. Do we have any indication, Mark, of, of season lengths? Is it is it going to be six episodes? Is it going to be a reduction or even maybe an expansion? There's nothing about episode count at the moment, but from past interviews with RTD, he's sort of a gog, really, at the reduced episode count. So I wouldn't be surprised that you'd be seeing 13 episodes a year again and uh, with a special as well. Uh, and also more digital uh, content to supplement the, the show and, and get some get the marketing and, and the publicity sort of back on track as well. Yes. I think you'd be seeing less secrecy around uh, what's going on like it is now mm. and a bit more openness uh, and trying to build up some momentum to uh, the relaunch. Yeah. That's what we've heard so far. Now, the whole Twitterverse exploded overnight with the, with the news, of, uh, the return of R2-D2. Uh, Rob, because I know you sent the tweet to me in the early hours of the morning. Yeah. What was your reaction when you sort of were eating your bowl of cornflakes and uh, that came through your uh, your feed? I wasn't eating cornflakes, mate. I was editing the current podcast that you'll be <laughs> listening to the remainder of once we finish speaking. It was actually just after midnight. So, you know, my life is shot when I'm just editing podcasts after midnight. No, I was, I was completely flummoxed. I had no indication whatsoever that Davies would actually envisage coming back because since he left the show, he's been quite busy doing his own thing. He's been quite successful doing his own thing, you know, with a very British scandal and uh, years and years, and uh, it's a sin. Those series have come out to generally great acclaim. I think I think the best of them is a very British scandal, in my opinion. I was flummoxed, but thinking about it, and it didn't take me too long to come to this conclusion, I'm quite excited by it. You could argue, yes, it is a backward step in terms of the decision to go and get the original new series showrunner. I think getting him back 
he is, you know, 18 years older since he first sort of signed on. Uh, he's 18 years better in terms of his writing and his ability to tell stories. To come back to the show, yes, you know, there's, there's probably, you know, a, a blizzard worth of money coming his way, but you wouldn't do it if you didn't think that you had something else to say. I don't expect it necessarily to be a retread in terms of stories and all that sort of thing. I think it still will be, you know, the broad approach, uh, the broad pop popular approach that he took uh, in, you know, in the series Comeback Popper in 2005. But thinking about it, I... I It, it, it is a measure of how uh, low the show has fallen in my estimation over the last few years that I uh, am quite excited by the idea of a former showrunner coming back. Um, and, you know, given that it's Russell T Davies, given that he's got the runs on the board, uh, given that he's got that track record of, you know, uh, popular appeal and success, I mean, the show has never, in, in the, since 1989, the show has never been more popular than since, uh, you know, Davies had his, had his particular era. Now, The TV industry has moved on, obviously. You have to understand that. Uh, so, you know, overall, across the board, viewing figures are going to be lower than what they, you know, envisaged. But I think amongst all the other TV shows, I, I think the new era will be broadly popular again, um, you know, within relatively speaking. Uh, and I think it's just a great shot in the arm. I, I, I actually, I'm, unlike the last couple of years, the last few years, I'm actually looking forward a great deal to what Davies and his team uh, will bring to the series. Be, I think it'll be great. I think it's great. What about you, Mark? What do you think? Well... <laughs> Oh dear. When I heard the news, I tweeted that I was disappointed about hearing it. I had 24 hours to reflect on the news, and I'm afraid my feelings haven't changed. <laughs> Reminds me just like in 1985 when the BBC didn't know what to do with the program. Essentially, what they've done is actually reinstalled the old one, and I've chosen to play it safe, really. The king is um, dead. Long live the, the king. Instead of moving forward and trying something new, they've chosen to, to play it safe. I think it shows that the BBC doesn't know what to do with the program whatsoever. That's not necessarily a, a problem. If you admit that you don't know what to do with Doctor Who, mm. but you are willing to go outside the, your box mm. um, and pull in someone else to come in with fresh ideas, come in with a fresh approach, come in with fresh energy, mm. well, then I give a big tick to the BBC for admitting that. I mean, otherwise, the easiest thing in the, in the world to do was to see, say, see you later to Chibnall and Whitaker and then lock the doors and we'll see you in five to ten years. Instead... <laughs> I think the BBC recognises the show when it is running on all cylinders, is a hot property, is a global brand, and I hate using that term on it. You know, you just want to sit down and watch a TV show and be entertained. But in this day and age, where Disney is eating everyone's lunch with the Marvel TV shows, Doctor Who is the brand that the BBC has that is is known worldwide. Not willing to euthanise it and handing it over to someone who's got a track record of success, I think, is a tick of approval in the show and in, in its innate potential, which sadly, I don't think the current regime has been able to build on and, you know, run with. You mentioned the word refresh. So why are they going backwards? You can't tell me in the UK TV industry at the moment, and there's a lot of good stuff being produced, that they did not look outside and really sort of cast a net further. Look at getting a showrunner who has got no baggage with the program whatsoever and could do something different with it as opposed to trying to reheat a souffle and recreate something that, yes, was very successful. But as you said, TV's moved on from then. So I just find it, I know you're talking refresh and everything like that, but you really, for me, you don't go back to the well and drink from it again. I would agree with you, Mark. When Davies comes back, he does exactly everything the same again. Everything the same again, the same story approach, the same directors, the same writers, the same style of actors in the lead role, for instance. 
But that's not going to be the case. That can't be the case. I think Davies would know that in 2021, the approach that he took in 2003, four and five, when they were setting up the show again, won't work. It can't work. And as I said before, it's 18 years. You know, <laughs> the show is effectively an adult now. It's 18 years since he, he, he came back, or the show came back with him, um, or it was announced that he was going to be running the show. I think that there's going to be no problem with Davies, you know, doing the show again because it'll be, it'll be he's a different writer or he's a, an even better writer, and he understands mm. what the industry, uh, where the industry is now and what people expect. And I admit, he's, the, the show you mentioned at the beginning, you know, uh, a very British scandal, uh, it's a sin and years and years have been excellent. But I also, the last lot of specials he did for the program, which veered from average to appalling. And yeah. then you go back and read the writer's tale book. He is struggling you know, to get the storylines together for series four oh. and is tired. As you said, the approach that he had back then, where it's just one man controlling the creative con- the creative decisions, pulling the series together, he needs to let these let go of the reins a bit, get people like script editors to actually get in and do a job. And, and look, and to be honest, I really hope it works for his sake, because if it doesn't, I think it will tarnish his legacy. But he also needs to rein in some of the excesses from his last stint running the show, you know, reduce feels as it were you know less overblown series finales mm. less less castrati music um <laughs> and less filler forgettable episodes and focus on the drama that he excels at and give us more midnights and less end of times to be perfectly honest with you no that's and, fair enough i can agree that there's an argument there to say that the bbc has made a really conservative choice here mm. but um when you have a Worldwide, I might be overblowing it, sorry, when I keep on using the term worldwide, but just run with me. We've got a worldwide franchise. Sometimes you you do have to do the conservative play. It could have been sensible or creatively. Look, it could have been something if you'd gone and picked someone else, if you'd found another showrunner, a female showrunner or a showrunner of colour, whatever, uh, and, and said you've got three to five years to bring the show back to what it was. Or you can do, all huge organisations do, make the safe choice. Now, I'm not insulting anyone here or RTD by saying you are the safe choice, RTD. But in effect, you are the safe choice. But you're the safe choice wrapped around a really creative, dynamic, strong, energetic writer who's got runs on the boards, um, who has not lost a step in the last since he left in 2009. And I think, you know, you say at the end of it, he was creatively tired and all that sort of thing. And that's, that's fine, Mark. I totally agree with you on that. But it's been 12 years since then. And mm. I think, you know, it, that's plenty of time to recharge the batteries and, 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 and just pick up the baton again and go forward. And look, he would be remiss if he didn't groom, as we've been indicating earlier, a successor or a couple of potential successors. Absolutely. And then have them fight off in a cage yeah. match with pens and laptops. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, totally see where you're coming from. And I can understand there are people out there who go, but RTD, he's done this before. What will he bring new? I think you bring a new sense of, I mean, my personal reaction is that for the first time in a long time, the show now has a sense of direction. It has a sense of purpose. And there's a real anticipation now about what comes next. I'm not having a go at Whitaker, certainly, because it's not her fault that the scripts are as they are in front of her. I think Chibnall Unfortunately, there's an overwhelming sense or a desire for secrecy. I, I think the success that he had in Broadchurch has uh, affected the way he's uh, he's been as showrunner. There's a lot of close holding of information, you know, very little publicity, it seems, and the length of time between seasons. I mean, I, was, I did a quick count. Between when Jodie Whittaker started in 2017 and 2020, so or, or the most recent episode, there have been 22 episodes, Mark. 22 Jesus. episodes in four years, effectively four years. All right, COVID got in the way. I understand that. But even so, if you take 
a one year off. That's 22 episodes in three years. For a franchise like this, it's stuck in the mud. Mm. You know, it's got mm. no forward momentum. And it just desperately needs, a, you know, a, you know, the defibrillators to come out and just get the heart started pumping again. Um, and mm. I think that's what Davies will bring, and I think that's what the BBC was looking for. I personally look forward to seeing what the next six episodes bring and what the, you know, the next three specials bring, because I think Jodie Whittaker deserves a really good send-off. And I think Chibnall deserves a really good send-off as well. And hopefully there's that opportunity for all of that to come together in this latest set of or batch of episodes. But, you know, I think now a lot of people in fandom are actually looking beyond that and are looking forward to what, you know, the 60th anniversary brings. Look, I just hope that um, Russell and co install some people around him have the uh, the testicular fortitude to say to Russell sometimes, no, actually, that's not a good idea. How about this? Mark, yeah. it would take some people with some big balls to be able to do that. But I'm more than happy to join the production team if they want me. <laughs> Look, am I enthusiastic as others, you know, hailing the return of the Messiah? Not really, but look, I haven't watched it for a while, mm-hmm. uh, but I am I'm willing to give it a watch when, when RTD takes over and uh, I'll try to engage with it more than what I have recently. And Russell, if you're hearing me, please don't bring back Mantovani Gold to provide the music. <laughs> for God's sakes, cast somebody in the role who's decent. Before we hand it back to our parcels, it would be remiss of me not to have a 42 to Doomsday episode that does not include any references to missing episodes. Now, do you think the reappointment of uh, RTD as, uh, I was going to say JNT, uh, reinstalling RTD back into the hot seat. Mm. Do you think that this might loosen the iron grip of Phil Morris a little bit, you think? We're going to have a little bit of fun with it for a couple of minutes, obviously. It seemed like Caroline Skinner had a good relationship with uh, uh, Phil Morris in the lead-up to uh, the, the, the 50th anniversary. It seemed like she was the point person uh, in terms of having you know episodes uh, coming back. Um, now... We all know that Morris had problems with Moffat's approach um, and then Moffat went. And then we all know that Morris uh, has a problem with what he regards, I think, not to put words in his mouth, but I think based on his Twitter feed, uh, a so-called woke agenda. Um, so one hopes that if, if, if Phil is sitting on some episodes in a potential alleged lockup in an alleged, alleged place called Wigan, that if he was of a mind to... With the 60th anniversary coming up uh, and the show, you know, ha- having a, a renewed sense of excitement, uh, celebration, and, you know, if you wanted to follow a particular template that you may have followed 10 years ago and wanted to cash in and you were perhaps sitting on, I don't know, just to pluck something out of the air, the abominable snowman, maybe Power of the Daleks, I don't know. Maybe Celestial oh, Toymaker? Yeah. Could yeah. be. Could be. Um, look, you know, there, there's always thoughts <laughs> that perhaps Phil is sitting on some other episodes. And who knows? Why would he have wanted to sit on them for 10 years? I don't know. I don't cast aspersions or anything like that at all. It's just we're having a, bit, a, little, bit of, a little bit of fun here. But uh, it would be nice to, you know, celebrate the return of the series in the new sense and the re- return of the series in the classic sense. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that, Mark? It would be a merging of worlds that would knock your socks off, wouldn't it, really? Can I make a prediction right here, Mark? Go for it. That, that for the 60th anniversary, Dalek's Master Plan will be the classic story that is highlighted for the for the 60th anniversary whether that will be an animated version or found episodes we'll wait to see if that comes true and as a great man always used to say stay tuned and now back to our past selves i rewatched survival for the first time in about 20 years oh did you you enjoy it i really enjoyed it you can see how much editing went into bringing it down to a transmission length that was suitable for the slots Mm. But 
I really enjoyed it. Just to segue completely away from what we were talking about, I, I thought McCoy was really good, except for a, you know one or two shouty scenes where he just he, he just can't do it. Mm. He can't do it. And Anthony Ainley was superb. Mm. He just it's <laughs> just completely different performance. It was, and the sort of performance that he should have been doing for the entirety of his time as the master. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Mm. But then to get up in watching season 24 and enjoying that as well. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with you, more more pointedly? I have actually sat down and watched the Web of Fear. The Blu-ray? I watched some of that new animation. Oh, yes. Any thoughts on the animation, mate? I really like the T-1000 approach to Anne Travis is really interesting, I think. <laughs> this is going to be a really local Australian reference, but do you remember when the D-Generation did the late show and they did their, 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 their take on uh, the Thunderbirds? <laughs> that as soon as I saw an extended because you know people post stuff on the internet uh, yeah. as soon as I saw an extended clip um, yeah that, that's what immediately came to mind it was I have no artistic bone in my body Mark in terms of you know rendering you know animating and stuff like that so it, and rotoscoping and all that stuff so I can't really criticise except I am going to criticise it was pretty bad it was pretty bad. I know it's a new technology and everything like that. And when the Cardiff Pravda is sort of saying in its preview of the episode uh, that the animation style might be slightly divisive, <laughs> uh, I think it was underselling it a lot. And my concern with this animation style, like people have seen it and gone, oh, Jesus Christ. And the same team apparently is doing Galaxy 4 and Abominable Snowmen. Now, Abominable Snowmen with T-1000 claws sticking out of it could be a really interesting addition. A bit concerned that is the quality that they're going to keep pumping out actually going to diminish some sales? I don't know. It would be interesting. Look, Doctor Who fans will probably buy anything with a bloody logo on it. You're right, mate. mate they will. If, they, if they'll if they buy underpants with Tom Baker's face splattered across the front of them, then yes, they'll buy just about anything. I don't understand why they couldn't keep going with the same sort of animation style they'd been doing in Fury and the upcoming Evil. I thought that was perfectly fine. But to now change it over, it's because they're trying to get down the cost, I imagine, and, you know, it's all offshore now. Obviously, they want to get them out as quickly as possible so that mm. they can slap them into any Blu-ray release for the, you know, the, for, for the 60s, the black and white era. And to replace the uh, upcoming film versions. That'll be returned, I'm sure. <clears throat> yeah, I'm mm. sure. <laughs> I heard an interesting rumour today, Mark, and this is completely rumour and it's allegation, and, mm. you know, that, that's fine. I heard that in 2017... The BBC sent a representative around to Phil's place mm. to help, I don't know, just to look over what he was holding in his lockup or whatever his lockup actually is. Mm. And um, Phil apparently, allegedly, caught this BBC rep taking photos or trying to take photos of the titles on the film cans. Really? <laughs> and went absolutely, allegedly, troppo. Uh, and uh, allegedly, this BBC representative was allegedly sacked. Uh, this whole thing is covered with allegedly. It is a rumor that I heard, and is not meant to cast any aspersions on anyone's uh, character or behaviour. But it's interesting what allegedly happened in 2017. Allegedly, it's more allegedly less than an article from the Australian. <laughs> oh my god, oh it's very interesting, isn't it? Really, see, that's why I've been offering Rob. We set up a SWAT team. We get over there post COVID and mm. do the job properly, Mission Impossible style. Where eagles dare, Mark. Where eagles could, land into glass buildings, yeah. I could be like uh, Clint Eastwood, but with less hair. <laughs> I'll be like the chimp. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and on that bombshell, it's now time to move to the main part of the episode.
In our Up Periscope podcast, episode 90, uh, Fact Fans, we looked back at uh, the Australian Doctor Who fans' reaction to season 17, as well as the tidbits of news filtering from old Blighty regarding season 18. In this episode, we actually look back at the year 1981 in its totality. And to help us go through this um, time period, we again obtain some fanzines from back in the day regarding how the season was perceived by the fans. Now, unfortunately, DWB wasn't in publication in 1981, Rob, but we've obtained a full year's run of the Duas's publication Celestial Toy Room and TARDIS. So we're going to go through these articles and we're also going to call out some of the highlights of the year 1981 from both a television, a film and a music perspective as well. So uh, are you ready to sort of drag yourself back, Rob? 1981, set the way back machine, Mark. Nineteen eighty one rang in the new year with uh, Peter Sutcliffe was caught the Yorkshire Ripper and imprisoned for the life of thirteen counts of murder. The first DeLorean car was uh, produced on the twenty first of January, and of course it's uh, now famous as being Marty McFly's uh, time machine. Assassinations kept on happening in uh, in the early eighties, where attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan happened. He was shot in the chest outside Washington DC hotel by John Hinckley, bit of a fan of Jodie Foster, I believe. Mm. And a couple of months after that, Pope John Paul II was shot by a uh, would be assassin as well. Again, the Pope survived the attack. Of of course, who can forget in July, the big one, the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di took place. And of course, even bigger highlight was the term internet was first mentioned. What were you doing in 1981, young Rob? Ooh, I think I turned double figures uh, that year. The big memory that I have from that year was actually moving moving towns and moving schools. Uh, at the tender age of whatever it was at that point, <laughs> my family, we, we uh, my parents uprooted us all and we moved uh, to a, another country town in Victoria where they'd bought a new business. So... That were actually the late '81 was extremely traumatic for me. Let alone having God's representative on Earth getting shot, or you know Ronald Reagan almost <laughs> taking one for the team. Peter Sutcliffe going down for multiple counts of murder. Did the British have a lovely line in squalid serial killers, don't they, during the 20th century and into the 21st? Uh, no, nobody does multiple murders in a disgusting, filthy manner other than the British. I don't know what it is. It must be poor housing, bad dental <laughs> dental hygiene, and just this incipient desire to just murder and kill each other uh, brings that to the fore. But um, yeah, 81 and the royal wedding. Well, down with the monarchy, up with the republic, I say, if I can say that. Um, yeah, how was 81 for you, Mark? Just as traumatic, I think, Rob. Were you still speaking Welsh? I just moved over. So basically, 1981 was my um, debut year living in this country. Did you miss out on being a page boy at the royal wedding? No, I missed out on being a page boy at my auntie and uncle's wedding, though. Ah. Something I've never forgotten or never forgiven. Oh, jeez. The hate lives long in, in your heart, Mark. As I keep saying to my children, hate makes me go stronger. <laughs> Yeah, so we've moved over here and that was traumatic enough starting a new school where lots of kids were saying the F-bomb when in Wales we only said the word busted. Um, so yes, getting across all those new social cues was interesting and also living in a country where the weather was more than uh, five degrees. The weather was a killer, Mark. It was I mean, awful. Coming over to Australia with it's 40 in summer, 40 degrees in summer. I had massive burns on my legs because I just, <laughs> I just went outside for 10 minutes and next thing I know they're wrapped in bandages. And uh, yeah, it was just awful. The eighties were the was the era of the hole in the ozone layer, so you must have had one directly overhead following <laughs> you around. Was, I think it was directly above West Preston, I think, at the time. <laughs> if only it had actually sterilised some of the people there. 
Yes. <laughs> Especially at the moment. Yeah, happy times and places, Rob, really. What an interesting year. It was. So let's head back now to January 1981. Let's just see if it gets any better. The first article from the uh, Celestial Toy Room, it says, Times twosome. On December 13th, the first recorded wedding of two Gallifreyans took place at Chelsea Registry Office. The occasion, of course was a marriage of outgoing stars Tom Baker and Lala Ward. The couple are still intent on remaining in the acting profession, and it is rumoured they're interested in working together in joint projects. Nothing has been finalised yet, although the divorce probably will be very soon. But <laughs> offers have been considered. The Dwas naturally hope that they live long and prosper. What are they doing quoting Star Trek in a Doctor Who magazine? What is wrong with these people? I don't know. More interestingly, I wonder what the activities were like in the conjugal bed. What sort of noises Tom Baker was making? Ah! Oh. <laughs> My throbber. <laughs> Poor Lala. What can I Living say? in Hong Kong now. Look at the photo that we've got there. Tom is all teeth. He's grinning mm. from ear to ear. She looks slightly... Perplexed? Remorseful? <laughs> trapped. And it's not in e-space that I'm trapped either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trapped. Let's just grin and bear it. For 11 months. But both of them got great sets of teeth. So yes, uh, that did live long and prosper, didn't it, really? Mm. Just above this, Robert, I found this interesting. It says, Stop Press, A Day with a TV Producer. At the end of November, a book entitled A Day with a TV Producer was published, which features John Nathan Turner and deals with the production of The Leisure Hive. With 54 stills in the shops, this would cost you £3.25. But the society has been given the option of obtaining copies at a discount. Ooh. So basically, uh, and it said here, offer not open to overseas members. It's like apartheid for postage, isn't it? <laughs> really? Again, we're being excluded from obtaining discounted publications. Good enough to be part of the empire, but not good enough to get discounted Doctor Who tat. Absolutely unbelievable. Mm. Uh, and this is uh, from the Coordinator's Corner, Mark. It reads, with the current season now well underway, I must say how much I am enjoying it. With full circle only half over, John Nathan Turner assured me that we had seen nothing yet and once State of Decay began, I could realise what he meant and eagerly anticipate the Keeper of Traken and Legopolis to see the additions to the crew of the TARDIS. To judge from the letters arriving for the trans-dimensional mailbag, most of you agree with my own views on the 18th season, and I'm sure that this year's season poll will present us with a tough choice in picking a favourite story. The choice of Peter Davison as Tom Baker's successor has also met with a favourable reaction on the whole. I'm sure that you will be pleased to note that when Lala and Tom's marriage was announced, a telegram of congratulations was sent to them by Mark on behalf of the Society. Now, Mark, you're not sending telegrams now, eh, to strangers' weddings? It was the only way to get an interview back then. No invite, of course, again. In the year that the internet was first mentioned, the idea that telegrams... Uh, we're still going on is a bit of an oddity, but anyway. Yes. The actual fact, I learned to use a telex in 1981 because uh, as part of... Uh, my parents had bought a motel, and which was part of a chain, and the way to communicate with the different motels within the chain uh, was through a telex. So I learned to type and send messages to complete strangers uh, far, far away. They're called forums now, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you too can be groomed. So... <laughs> Mark, do you have any thoughts on this particular little bombshell from the coordinator's corner? It's very positive, isn't it? You know, I give the Cardiff Pravda a bit of kicking in terms of their positivity about anything the program is doing. But look, the season's halfway. And it says, John, they've turned assured me that we ain't seen nothing yet. So obviously they've got to keep them happy, haven't they, really? Well, as part of my rewatch uh, of, of um, 
survival. Mm-hmm. I also watched a little bit of The Keeper of Traken, and I, I actually like what I saw. It has been so long, so long since I've actually seen it. So um, I'm, I think I'm going to sit down at some point when I've got a spare hour and a half and, and watch the full thing. It looks really good. It is good. It's a very good season. Big fan of it. Mm. Right, Celestial Toy Room. This is February 1981. It says, Dr. Fights Buck. Oop. Not Dr. Fights Back. Very clever. Mm. Very good. This is almost as good as a Daily Mail, some of the puns they're doing mm. here. Cardboard cutout series, Back Rogers, along with memories of Horns of Nymon, meant that the Leisure High got only, on average, an audience of 4.9 million viewers. BBC Two programs have been watched by more people. Oh, dear. Fortunately, people have been switching over to Doctor Who during the course of its run, and with Megloss, the audience was around 9 million. According to BBC Audience Research, the program is attracting older viewers whilst children sit agog at the special effects wizardry of Rogers. I suppose that is a fair comment of Glenn Larson's show, or in the words of his pint-sized robot, diddly 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 did buck. Mm. I think he's having a go at me there because I was watching Buck Rogers as well. As was I, but that was on a commercial network here in Australia, so there was no competition with nah. Doctor Who. And I think in a uh, an evening time slot as well, from memory. No, I was watching it on the ITV. Uh, that was a disgrace. Uh. Well, hang on. This thing about uh, Megloss getting nine million—I don't. That's not right, is it? I don't think it's right. No episode got more than six. Um, I think there's been a bit of massaging of the uh, of the statistics there. Fake news. Fake news, Mark. Straight from the Doctor Who fan uh, mouthpiece, uh, Celestial Toy Room. While you read out the next article, I'm going to find out the ratings for Megloss. I've just typed in Meg, and it comes up with Megan Markle. Again, Mark. It all goes back to the royal wedding in 1981. Exactly. You read out the next article and I'll bring up the ratings and uh, I will shock you. Two Faces? Yeah. This uh, little article is headlined, as I said before, Two Faces. Uh, Face-ers. Or one of my main criticisms of that season poll topper, see the New Year book, The City of Death, was the ridiculousness of its lead villain Scaroth, the last of the Jaggeroth. Lots of alien races seem to be dying off, don't they? In, uh, in brackets there. Uh, his disguise was just too silly for me to be able to suspend my disbelief. You're watching a show about a man flying around in a police box <laughs> in time and space. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, to my dismay, this form of illusion was emulated, though in much better style, in The Leisure Hive. I remember some years back, Philip Hinchcliffe saying that the age of the rubber mask was over. It is strange then that so many alien races are using this, quote-unquote, technology. Mm, wait till you have a look at the Slovene, mate. <laughs> I reckon this person would have probably had a heart attack and keeled over in a wave of flatulent gas escaping from their dying body. Mm. Oh, wait till he gets the time flight. That's even worse. <laughs> he had green snook coming out of his yeah. mouth. He's not only doing a, uh, a suspect impression, but the mask was lumpy and everything like that. And plus, um, there was a few rubber masks in the 80s. Some were very good. Hello, Shara's Jack. Uh, some are not so good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, Shara's Jack, eh? Mm. Was that what you thinking Here's about, a- Perry? Anyway, how'd you go with the numbers, Mark, for Megloss? They lied. For part one of Megloss, 5 million viewers. Part two was 4.2. Part three was 4.7. And part four was 4.7. There you go. Live fact-checking on the 42 to Doomsday podcast. So that report, lies. <laughs> so the next article is headlined, Canines, a doggy bag. Uh, when John Nathan Turner became the producer of Doctor Who, he picked up a doggy bag of scripts and ideas left behind by the old Graham Williams administration. Amongst them were the first three stories to be used in the 1980-81 season. The Leisure Hive was originally a story in the vein of the Macra Terror, in that it was to have a sort of Butlin's holiday camp atmosphere with red coats and all. This was reworked into the classy production that reached our screens. 
Unfortunately, Meglos did not get quite the full J&T and Co treatment due to deadlines. The difference was quite noticeable between the two styles, even if the tighter production techniques of the new series were strongly in evidence. Full marks to J&T for being brave enough to give new writer Andrew Smith the chance to break in on the scene when he picked up all of Andrew's ideas filed by the old production team. The resulting show proved him correct. It was an excellent story. It's that level of uh, analysis that uh, <laughs> one could expect in 1981, Mark. If I was uh, Christopher H. Bidmead reading that, I'd be going, what? Didn't I work with Andrew Smith and mentor him and, and get him to help produce the goods as opposed to, you know, John Nathan Turner getting the, the credit again? And poor old Megloss. I think it's a season 17 story done with money. <laughs> uh, again, it's a story that I've not watched in many a decade. Uh, bad fan. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting <laughs> that J&T is taking all the glory uh, via Celestial Tour Room. It's, I mean, it's not surprising, I suppose, <laughs> given that he's re re released a book, A Day in the Life of the Producer, barely, you know, a year into his job. So. It's like the first three minutes. He's got a recording contract. Now he's doing a movie. He's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, J&T, My Life and Times. There's <laughs> a documentary crew following him around. Let's make magic, uh, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> With the bunga bunga parties. Uh, What's the next one, Mark? This one uh, is from March 1981. It says Vandals. Remember those stencils? Mm. Yes, they've, yep. they've sort of worn it out here. It says Vandals. Do you reckon, Mark, this was produced on one of those duplicators? You know those... Yeah. You had a, a drum and a chemical that would send you higher than Jupiter. Oh, wonderful, weren't they? I remember yes. my teachers just, you know, turning the handle and... The, this, these copies would emerge and it was just the, the reek of chemicals was in a small cupboard sized space it was great mm -hmm. my school was so um, rough basically while they were rotating the drum there was no paper on it they were just smelling it anyway just trying to get high. <laughs> how tough was West Preston Mark you seem very scarred <laughs> remember that song Gangster's Paradise <laughs> that was me mate that was me <laughs> alright yeah, read on, Mark. Speaking of tough, back to Vandals. <laughs> a source of Doctor Who reference material easily accessible for every fan has, has been vandalised. The Westminster Central Library in London for many years has been a storehouse of periodicals. No longer recalled by the general public some household names. One of those is the Radio Times. The volumes up to and including 1966 are stored in the basement of one of the library buildings, which is situating in Charing Cross Road. Because library staff have allowed members of the public to consult these books without interference, their contrast has earned them a stab in the back. Someone has been able to cut out all the Radio Times Doctor Who cast lists, these cover the William Hartnell episodes of the program. No longer will fans be able to check cast and production details of that period for themselves. Now this information, which is not easily obtainable elsewhere, except for perhaps for one person who is sick enough to think himself a fan of the program. This is not the first case of vandalism. For many years now, the illustrated articles which accompanied each story have been missing torn out defacing public property which is intended for every fan's interest i have referred to the culprit as being a fan in quotes because i cannot honestly think that a person who has no interest in the program would only steal doctor who clippings vandals mate not only they're cutting out bits of bloody radio times they're throwing out film prints of nicking photos from the doctor who uh photographic library mate fans what a bunch of plonkers <laughs> I wonder if the uh, writer of the article knew who the fan was. Well, secretly. I think we could probably take a guess, couldn't we? There's any number of potential, but, you know, let's not get sued. 
I wonder if some of them work for the... You're going to cut that out, Mark, I can tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Celestial Toy Room from April 1981, and it says here, Rob, Doctor Who for Disco Danger. Ooh. The Doctor Who theme is helping to prevent such tragic accidents that which occurred at the St. Valentine's Disco in Dublin. What? Maxims of London's Leicester Square, one of the biggest discotheques in the West End, uses Ron Grainer's music to alert staff without panicking dancers. What's going on? Immediately the Doctor Who theme plays, the staff take up their pre-arose positions to shepherd the customers out of the exits and to safety. What situations would require the Doctor Who theme to be struck up uh, to alert staff? What, what's going on? I mean, is you know someone... Dance off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's clear the dance floor. Everyone, everyone, move this way, and everyone move that way. It's Ron Grainer's theme versus Jeff Love's theme. It's a dance-off. <laughs> Careful McCulloch's interpretation of the theme. You're gonna get a much, much more. What's the word? Panicked reaction <laughs> to the escape pods. Fans stampeded to death. That's bizarre. That is strange. And of course, the Doctor Who theme is available at BBC Records and Tapes. <laughs> all good uh, record stores that no longer exist. Drum the old record stores and brashes and all those. Yes. What was that uh, second-hand one that was in Swanston Street, Mark? That big one. Batman. Batman. Batman Records. Yes. I bought some nice. I think books from Batman because I also did second-hand books. While I was in a record store buying books, I don't know, Mark. But anyway, they were cheap, and I was there. And they also used to rent out CDs. Renting CDs, Mark when uh, CDs were like $30, $40. Used to go and rent them out. You, you would remember that JB would never discount on CDs. They were always no less than 30 bucks. And I remember mm. people complaining, I think it was in the Green Guide, where, when are these retailers going to reduce the prices of CDs below the 30 buck RP? Now you can't give them away, can you? Yeah, well. I am slowly, slowly thinning out my book collection, Mark, and... Uh, there are some CDs in some boxes that are just going to have to go as well. So, sadly, but they're going to have to just go into the skip because no one will buy them. Especially that Aqua album. What can I say? This next article, Mark, is uh, from Celestial Tour Room for May 1981. Uh, obviously, summer in England, summer in the UK. What is summer like in the UK, Mark? Do you... It did get some very nice days, 21, 22. Mm. Uh, anything over 19 degrees, the uh, handkerchief hat comes on and, and people start taking off their t shirts. Scary. <laughs> yeah, you can't sort of get that out of the mind's eye too quickly. No, no. Every time I've been over there, I've been lucky enough to go for summer. The weather's been uh, quite pleasant. Nothing better than sitting outside an English pub, having a uh, pint of cider and getting text messages from people saying, what's Doctor Who like at the moment? So I'm not watching him at a pub. When <laughs> <laughs> Capaldi's last series was there, they said to me, you're not a Doctor Who fan. You know what, Mark? I don't think you are. <laughs> no, I am, but I'd rather sit outside an English pub having a nice cider. And... Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not that we can do that right now, but, you know, give it a few weeks, maybe a month or two. Freedom Day. When's it coming? Coming to a uh, uh, capital city near you. <laughs> uh, yes, for May 81, uh, the article is uh, headed, uh, J&T denies doggy bag. <laughs> this is a real mystery here, Mark. Doctor Who producer John Nathan Turner wishes to correct a report made in the February bulletin. He writes, and I quote, I did not pick up a doggy bag of ideas and scripts left behind by my predecessors. I personally commissioned all the stories of this season, although State of Decay in a very different form indeed existed as an episode one only, which was left by Graham Williams. Gordon Blows wishes to apologise to Mr. Nathan Turner and the membership alike for misreporting the situation. 
Who was that uh, script editor again you mentioned, Mark? I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, Christopher Hamilton Bedmead. I believe he's a shy and retiring fellow. Is that correct? He really greatly underplays his importance in the whole uh, Doctor Who mythos, mm. especially particularly for that season. Yes. Could J&T be prickly, Mark? He likes to cut people's lunch and take the credit. Yes. See, J&T read it. He didn't like it. He got on the phone and said, Gordon, I'm not happy with this. Please correct it. I mean, this is the thing with JT, wasn't it, Mark? I mean, he would always read the coverage. I mean, you would a few years later, he would be white hot with rage, you know, reading DWB with the way that they were, you know, covering his mm. tenure. Um, he would, you know, he'd, he'd go through and, and, and look over the articles in DWM before it was, you know, sent to the publishers. He had this desire to control... The narrative. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in one sense, I suppose that's smart, you know, corporate politics. But on the other hand, it's a, isn't it just a sort of waste of your energy and a diversion of your attention away from the main game? You know, which is making a television program. Absolutely. Not, you know, cutting down uh, fanzines, not swanning off to the US, you know, once every couple of weekends for um, some cash in a brown paper bag for appearing at a convention. It's make the bloody program. I mean, what am I talking about? Of course, you have to make the program. He's dead now. It doesn't really matter. But make the bloody program, J&T. On the same cover, it has the famous four, the next season. And it goes for the uh, people who don't remember that, number 19, of Doctor Who will not begin until January 1982. This decision of the controller of programs for BBC One. The new season will again consist of seven stories, this time six, six four-parters and a two-parter. One story has already been completed. It is one of the four-part stories, and it is entitled Four to Dooms. Or to Doomsday is the second story of season 19 and will be transmitted in February 1982. Mm. Look forward to that, though. Very much. Great story. <clears throat> Bit of fluff there, isn't it, really? That's the sort of stuff J&T love reading. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, J&T, even from beyond the grave. The, the next letter is from an unhappy member of the Dwas, Rob. Do you want to read that out for us, please? As they say uh, in life, you never want to have an unhappy member. No, and especially one from the Dwas. Correct. So, this is obviously some feedback, a letter back to the CT team. The content of the newsletter is appalling. Three pounds per annum is not cheap and becomes even more so when on that you receive a nasty bit of paper that is not even decently done. I am not interested in opinion columns that all the worst zines carry. I am not interested in your no news policy. I despise this policy. It's ridiculous. People who don't want news don't have to read it, do they? It's no good saying that the Beeb don't release any. John Nathan Turner helps me out all the time with Fendale. Clearly that's his, uh, Simon's uh, fancy. Why no Letraset headings? Can't you afford them? I can imagine Simon, whilst he's typing away, smashing his fist on the table going, why won't they listen to me? I do a great scene. I know Jay and... T I mean, you know, get a grip, son. Have a lie down. I quite like a bit of stencil heading work. Get your little black texture and off you go. What's wrong with that? It's all in the font. Let's whiz over to the social toy room of uh, June 1981. Mm. I've only read a couple of articles so far, Rob, but I'm getting a very heavy John Nathan Turner bias. Really? This one's got a section heading. It says John Nathan Turner. And you think, uh oh, it could be an obituary. No. <laughs> Many letters are flooding into the production office expressing fears that John Nathan Turner will not be producing the next season. Let your fears be allayed. Mr. Nathan Turner assures us that he is contracted until March 1982 and thus will oversee the entire 19th season. Towards the end of his career, I don't think he was getting those letters. He was getting the opposite. I can imagine fan editors sort of huddled, you know, down low to the ground in awe and J&T is, is lowered down on ropes and pulleys with a, with, a, with a light, you know, a beam of light, you know, haloing around him. And he just throws them, you know, 
little pearls of wisdom and nuggets of information and they just cower and bow and scrape and thank you JNT thank you we will never say doggy bag ever again yeah, the doctor's wife here you go oh my <laughs> the best thing about that article would have been though however John Nathan Turner has indicated he will not be sticking past the five doctors yes well now you like a bit of rumour don't you Rob I love it mm, well listen to this repeats Ooh. question mark Rumours of a run of repeats during the summer months in the national press are just that, rumours. Some stories are likely to be rescreened, but no decisions as to which and when or even what channel has been finalised. So this is, I suppose, the first sort of tantalising glimpse or hints of the five faces of Doctor Who season as being uh, prepared. No doubt it's one of those nuggets that JMT has cast over his shoulder to slavering Mm. fan editors who are sort of, you know, following him from... Nightclub to nightclub, perhaps. And playing the Doctor Who theme when he gets too close. <laughs> That's when it was. JNT is holding court in a discotheque in the centre of London and then he spies a fan editor and he clicks his fingers and suddenly the Doctor Who theme is born. <laughs> and everyone's evacuated. <laughs> Still in June 1981, Mark. Ooh. And it's in sort of... The lettering of the letter set is a bit is, is is shaking. This is big news. Simon should be happy with this because they've upgraded the effect. It's like it was topped during an earthquake. So it's really good. It's it grabs it grabs the attention. All right, it's cutting edge. New script editor. It's not an exactly exciting, um, you know, title, but it's done in a nice shaky way. Uh, new script editor. Christopher Bedmead has left the position of script editor on the program, and since December, the post has been filled by Anthony Root who last worked on Doctor Who as an assistant floor manager on Destiny of the Daleks. This will be Mr. Root's first experience of script editing, although he has a prolific theatrical background. <laughs> it's a bit of a slapdown, isn't it, really? Oh, yeah, he's never done anything before, but he's tread the boards. <laughs> he's been in, uh, you know, provincial uh, theatre plays. Out in the boonies. But here's the problem with Doctor Who script editors. Ooh. Think post-Bidmead. Anthony Root didn't have much experience or very little experience. Yep. Sayward certainly had writing experience, but not much script editor experience. Mm. Carmel had no script editor experience. I mean, the ideas were fantastic, but as I keep saying, you know, the, you couldn't prune an episode down to 24 minutes if you tried. I mean, the extended editions on those programs, I mean, it's like Peter Jackson box set, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> It just beggars belief that a doc program like Doctor Who could not get an experienced script editor. And I keep saying it. Blake 7 finished in 81. Mr. Boucher in there. But, uh, of course, JNT didn't like anybody who knew more about the program than he did. So, unfortunately, we lost out. Now, let's have a look back at Target Books that uh, were released during 1981. So it wasn't many actually out there. A lot of reprints. There seemed to be a bit of shenanigans, which we'll get to later on in terms of the Target book list. But uh, in January, there was Doctor Who and the Creatures from the Pit by David Fisher. Uh, April, there was Doctor Who and the Enemy of the World by written by Ian Marta, with that naughty word in there. Busted. In July, there was a reissue of Doctor Who and the Sidemen with a brand new uh, cover. Now, Mark, what was the cover on that book? It was of two Cybermen just basically floating in space. I remember reading that uh, my local library in my new primary school got it in. Mm. Uh, and I remember reading it. Mm. It's an all right cover, but I mean, uh, still not a patch on the original. October was uh, Doctor Who and, and an Earthly Child by Terence Sticks, which of course was timing with the then unannounced uh, repeats of uh, An Earthly Child that was going to have how it come in November. Ah. Then you had in October, you had the Doctor Who Program Guide, Volumes 1 and 2 by Jean-Marc Lecifer. 
Yes. In December, the Doctor Who quiz book by Nigel Robinson. Just on that score, I picked up secondhand for 50 cents, which I think was overpriced, the Doctor Who uh, Book of Magic from this particular era. And it, it combines right. uh, magic <laughs> tricks and little adventures for the fifth Doctor, Tegan, uh, and I think Nyssa, because I think Adric had you know, burnt to a cinder by this stage. Well, wouldn't one of the magic tricks would be bringing him back? <laughs> the magic trick of Adric Resurrection, coming to you soon from a Doctor Who uh, novelization. The Doctor Who Program Guide, Volumes 1 and 2, are Crackers, fantastic, read them cover to cover heaps of times. Doctor Who and the Cybermen is a really well-written book, and it has the virtue of, you know, no one has seen the story uh, in 20 years, and no one will ever see all of the story again, uh, ever. Uh, and The Enemy of the World is a great book, isn't it? Ian Marder had a real uh, just quality to his writing that uh, elevated, you know, really good material to be great material. I can't remember that book at all. I've got it at home, obviously, but I've, I can't even remember reading it. Well, your task for the next episode, Mark, is to give us a uh, review. I haven't done the last task about watch, sitting down with watching a Jodie Whittaker episode. I've run out of alcohol. <laughs> Don't give me too many tasks. I'm not coping with tasks, Rob. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Now, Mark, you've actually made a list here of movies released in 81. I have. So Raiders of the Lost Ark was oh, uh, great. I've seen that. Mm. You've seen that, of course? Yep. Let's go through see, we see which ones we've seen. Uh, An American Werewolf in London? Yep. I think I saw that on telly once and it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, mm. The Evil Dead definitely scared the bejesus out of me. I saw that at a cousin's place. I saw that at um, uh, a sleepover when I was 12 or 13. Oh, no. Nightmares. <laughs> the remake is, 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 uh, has elements of humour, but the first one, that Raimi is not holding back. No, he's not. Now, Escape from New York? Yes. These are classics, yes. Mark. I mean, John Carpenter was on a real roll back in the early 80s. I mean, there was Escape from New York, Halloween, you know, a few years before that, The Thing. Mm. Um, yeah, no, some great stuff there. Did he do They Live? He did. He did They Live and... Um, that was a great film. What was the one in uh, Chinatown? Uh, Big Trouble in Little China. That's fantastic. Excalibur. Excalibur, yeah. my nightmare. That's great. I remember seeing that in on telly again in the 80s. What about Mad Max 2, Mark? You've seen that? Ah, uh, yes. I saw an illegal copy of that on VHS back in the day. Clash of the Titans. I saw that on VHS as well. Went and saw that in the cinema when we first came over here. Now, Arthur is not my cup of tea, but I do recall having seen it and not really laughing at it at all. No, it's not very good. Uh, is For Your Eyes Only um, with Connery? Roger Moore. Roger Moore. Time Bandits. People enjoy. I don't enjoy it. Oh, really? I quite like that one. Okay. Chariots of Fire. The music was nice. Yes. <laughs> Reds, I can definitely say I've not watched. Mm -hmm. Stripes, I have. Yep. And Porky's, I watched the night before my wedding. Of course you did. Of course I did. <laughs> uh, so that was 1981, people. The great movies. Go get them at your local uh, streaming service. <laughs> oh, I was going to say blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We uh, gallop into July 81, Mark. Still the height of the English summer. People are just frying on the you know you know the, the commons in their little villages it's all villages in the uk isn't it mark there are no cities and all that sort of thing but people live like uh, hobbits in the shire <laughs> isn't that right Christ. no what the hell there are cities there you know but yeah most yeah. of the people are in villages well if you around this time threads was about to you know <laughs> explode under the televisions much like many of the cities under a soviet nuclear onslaught so there weren't too many cities. anyway i'm babbling clearly this uh, story is headed Anybody's feeling a bit down about lockdown, watch threads like I did last year. Really cheered me up no end. Prescribed by all reputable psychiatrists to their patients. <laughs> if they want to thin out their uh, client list, of course. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It is July. 
England is full of people from the Shire. And the heading on this article is a kinder good story. These people love the puns. It's really ball-achingly bad. These guys now work for all the, all the Rupert Murdoch rags. I'm sure of it now. <laughs> Season 18 director Magnifique. Ooh. Peter Grimwade is to direct story three next season. It is called Kinder. No, I'm not sure how to pronounce it either. Or maybe Kinder. And is set on the planet Diva Loka. Uh, a writer is newcomer, Christopher Bailey. Not Kate Bush. Sadly. Not Kate Bush. And you know how there was a new script editor last issue, Rob? Yeah. Well, there's another one. <laughs> They're like buses, Mark. They are. They're like on the buses. I'll get you, Butler. <laughs> yes, so new script editor Anthony Root has had to leave the series, albeit temporarily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> will be replaced by visitation writer Eric the Hammer Sayward. <laughs> this arrangement lasting for just four months. <laughs> Five years later, Eric sets fire to his career in a sensational interview with Starburst magazine. <laughs> And Andrew Cartmel just finds a dried up bottle of red wine in his desk when he gets in there. Uh, four months. Really? Uh. It might have felt like five years, but it was four months. There's so much hope in this publication. Well, you know what? It's 81. The show is still, you know, riding relatively high-ish. It's not quite on the slide at the moment. So, mm. anyway. What's up next, Mark? Fans in Focus. So there is another background book on the program planned by a major publishing company, provisionally titled The Making of a TV Series, Doctor Who. As, as there is to be a section on fandom in the book, it is likely there will be a brief feature on the Society. It will be on sale early next year, and I'm assuming the, the Society would get copies and not be able to send them overseas on the cheap mm. again. Very brief, I think it was only one page, and a picture of a very stern people with a massive wow. amount of uh, mail sitting uh, on a table, looking very stern, going, how the hell are we going to get for all this paperwork? Now, I do note, Mark, at the very end, uh, it, it, we haven't uh, captured the next page, but it does, uh, this is amusing in the context of the year, uh, society appointment, it's headed, um, with the resignation of Gordon. Now, I assume this is Gordon Blows, who, uh, yeah. from Doggy Bag Gate, <laughs> clearly, clearly <laughs> Gordon... Uh, Gordon wasn't long for this uh, society or the world, I think. I think, I think J&T sent out some henchmen. Uh, yeah. Who was the communication director for Trump? Was he 10 days? Anthony Scaramucci lasted nine days, I think. This is the Doctor Who equivalent of Anthony Scaramucci. And Gordon Blows was never seen again. <laughs> oh. Gordon, if you're listening to this, can you write into... 42 to doomsday at gmail.com or our Twitter handle at 42 to doomsday and just tell us the true story of how you are frog marched out of the celestial toy room, you know, back office <laughs> with J and T, you know, just standing there with crossed arms and a and a glower on his face. Two 12 year olds march into his office, you know, with the little peak caps on saying, Gordon, your time has come. And gets frog marched out of the office. Uh. Bugger what Phil's got in Wigan. I want to know why Gordon actually left. <laughs> Crikey. Scandal. If anybody knows Gordon, please get in touch. We'd love to know the dirts and, um, you know, debunk this uh, assertion that mm. I just made that he's the anti-Scaramucci of Dr. Who <laughs> fandom. <sighs> what a big year that must have been in Gordon's life, 81. I bet you he wakes up screaming still. <laughs> The doggy bag. Don't mention the doggy bag. <laughs> he breaks into a cold sweat when he sees a brown paper bag. 
he's in a park and somebody goes, hey boy, he goes, where, where? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, actually, <laughs> we'd like Victoria because haven't we, haven't we outlawed the people taking food away from a restaurant in a doggy bag? <laughs> All right, we're having too much fun. <laughs> now, this next one will put Pegas down a level, actually. I'm bugging you to read it now because okay. it's a little bit sad. All right, we'll bring the tone down. Bring the tone down. <clears throat> All right, just, just, just wind it back. It's headlined poignantly, sparingly, Kit dies. But again, they've gone with the the, the, the shaky uh, Letraset heading, so I'm not quite sure how serious they're actually being about this. But anyway. <laughs> they're probably laughing with a Letraset. <laughs> uh, who, who knows who was jiggling away with the Letraset? Anyway, anyway. It could be from the tears. You know what I mean? Like they're getting upset. Yeah, anyway. Look, actually, the photo of Kit Peddler, he does look very poignant at the bottom uh, of this little column. Anyway. All right, but look, you have to buy the article, people, to buy the issue. It's July 81 for Celestial Toymaker. Rip it out, have a look. I'm sure that by now a great many of you will be aware of the sudden and tragic death of one of the stalwarts of Doctor Who during the 1960s, Dr. Kit Peddler, who, along with Jerry Davies, created the infamous Cyberman, died on the 27th of May. His body was discovered outside his kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit too much information here. Okay. <clears throat> oh my god. Sobriety. <clears throat> here we go. <laughs> his body was discovered outside his kid home. Apart from Doctor Who, his most notable work was on the brilliant and sadly underrated Doomwatch for BBC and more recently Mind Over Matter for ITV. His Doctor Who credits are writer of the moon base, co-writer of the War Machine's 10th planet, Wheel in Space and Invasion. I am sure that all Doctor Who fans and sci-fi fans in general will miss this very talented person. His body still is outside his skin tone <laughs> 41 years later. People just walk over the top of it. They just they, they go around it. Rail kit. <clears throat> yes. All right. Let's skate past that sad, sad, sad news. So having regained our composure uh, and having given ourselves a, a very strong talking to, uh, we are now in August of 1981. Now, this is the actual month that I moved town, so it was a very traumatic month for me. Uh, editorial. Um, and they've actually got the editorial address. Is that six and a half Belmont Crescent Maidenhead Burks? It's 64 Belmont Crescent Maidenhead Burks. So uh, if anybody, yeah, anybody in that house at the moment, if you're listening, just to get in touch and let us know how the house is going. Could be a uh, Doctor Who, you know, shrine. Um, is it actually, is the name of the, is it, what's Burks? Is that a county? Berkshire, I think. Ah, oh, Berkshire. Okay. Yeah. Could be just uh, basically a Burke. Could be. Although he's a Doctor Who fan, he's probably still living with his mum or a skeleton anyway. Well, oh, this is true. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Mark. Hi there, gang, it opens. I have to confess it is nice to be back in this country where trivia such as TV and music and other materialistic nonsense are intelligent, interesting and not full of hysterical prize winners on quiz shows who win £25,000 for saying how many beans make five. What, Mark, is going on here? Yes, you've guessed I'm talking about the big country on the other side of the pond. Not that I dislike America. In fact, I'd return at a second's notice. It's just nice to get back amongst the same. In the part of America where I was, the East, the program is being shown in chronological order, with one exception, and on the public broadcast system, which 
means no commercials and no voiceovers. Unlike the Australians, there is no apparent editing out of the gory bits. And considering it is put out at 6.30 weekday, children's viewing, I found that surprising. I saw Revenge of the Cybermen, Terror of the Zygons and Pyramids of Mars. The exception I mentioned being the swap around of Pyramids and Planet of Evil. Anyway, I had a wonderful time and was thinking of you all complete with rain while I basked in 97 degrees in the shade. Gloat, gloat, snigger, snigger. This fellow. Unfortunately, with production at a standstill for a couple of months, news is rather scarce, but here to start it off is... And then he jumps into some articles. Uh, who is Gary, by the way, Mark? I think it's Gary Russell. The, the Gary Russell. The Gary Russell. Scooped editor extraordinaire. He's lived on more continents than I've had hot breakfasts, Mark. Mm. Yeah, obviously getting a nice suntan. This is from September 1981. Again, shaky font. Sarah's return. There is to be a 50-minute special featuring K9, which will be screened towards the end of December, if present plans materialise. The only members of the current Doctor Who production team involved in this venture are production associate Angie Smith and producer Jonathan Turner. The special has the working title of A Girl's Best Friend, although this is not the final appellation and is likely to be written by Terence Dudley. John Leeson will, of course, star as a voice of canine, and Elizabeth Sladen will feature in a return to her role as the journalist Sarah Jane Smith, the girl of the working title. So, uh, again, September 1981, the brand-new Doctor Who spin-off was uh, being announced. Yes. When did it, was it shown over Christmas? Around Christmas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gave Ian Levine, obviously, a lot of time to work on the theme. Yes. Slaving night and day to get it just right. Sacrificing a thousand cats to get the meow meow. <laughs> and this is the big one, Rob. So then it goes, repeats. This is uh, on page two. I'm sure you've all read in the press recently of the five faces of Doctor Who, the series that every fan of the program has been crying out for for many years now. The series is projected to commence in October sometime, four days a week, in a similar vein to the recent full circle trike and repeats. The major difference here is that the series is on BBC Two. The stories feature, of course, all five Doctors. And just for those people who can't remember them, they're, of course, William Hartnell, Pat Troughton, John Pertwee, Tom Baker, and Peter Davison. The stories are The Tribe of Gum, the Crotons, The Three Doctors, Carnival of Monsters, and Logopolis, which feature both Baker and Davison. Clever, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a big thank you must go to Jonathan Turner for arranging the whole thing, and now we can eagerly sit and wait until next month arrives. Marvel Comics will celebrate the repeats via Doctor Who Monthly 58, which, which has features in all the stories bar three doc, which has already been done. And on October 15th, Target Books release in paperback only Doctor Who and, and An Earthly Child, penned by Terence Dixon, selling at the usual price of £1.25. Isn't it funny how it's, uh, instead of saying An Unearthly Child in this publication, it says The Tribe of Gum. Yes. Well, obviously, Andrew Pixley wrote this. No, I think it was Gary. Gary again. Might have been actually David Howe. Hmm. Oh, yeah, David Howe with thanks from Brenda Apsley. David Howe was crusading with the uh, change of title from An Unearthly Child to the Tribe of Gum, even back in 1981. Good point, fact fans. Uh, We've actually mentioned two people who we've previously interviewed in early episodes of 42 to Doomsday, being Andrew Smith, who was mentioned earlier in the year, uh, and David Howe, who we've also interviewed. Isn't that right, Mark? That's right. I actually thought for a minute you were going to say John Nathan Turner. I said, did we? What, via Ouija board or something? Okay, interesting. The uh, the Five Faces was a big deal, wasn't it, Mark? Oh, it was a massive deal. There's a great documentary on the Revenge of the Cybermen uh, DVD, which I uh, call Checks, Lies and Videotape, which uh, is one of my favourite documentaries about the piracy of uh, 
Doctor Who stories in the in the good old days. And as a, a one of the main takeaways from that documentary is that a lot of uh, fans in the UK, when the Five Faces was announced, was basically telling their parents to please sell a kidney, mortgage the house, get a big, massive mother clunker of a VHS machine, a couple of tapes, so they could record all these wonderful stories. Yeah. So, um, yeah, massive news. It's something we take for granted now. You know, just go on BritBox and all there, tick, 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 bang, off you go. Exactly. And we skip ahead to uh, October 1981 and look at yet another editorial written by one, well, it must be Gary Russell, Mark. It has to be. It is. It opens with this lament, basically. Why is it that every issue of Celestial Tour Room of recent months has opened with the words, there is not much to report on this month, but... An interesting question, sadly lacking, is an interesting answer. Then why post it, Gary? Still, here goes with this month's editorial. There is not much to report on this month except our variation to say, firstly, we can all breathe again on the news that John Nathan Turner will remain at the helm for the 20th season. Anniversary time, perhaps? Hopefully, with Eric Sayward as script editor. They're two things you'd never expect to see in the same sentence, would you, really? Well, Gary uh, <laughs> goes on... <laughs> Rather scathingly, I think. Secondly, I am very disappointed to see that Auntie has decided that the best place to put the repeats is opposite the major news on the other channels at 5.40. So whilst all the little kiddies and us, of course, want to watch five of the greatest Doctor Who uh, Who's of all time, uh, I for one love the Crotons. Gary is clearly uh, incorrect here. But anyway, that's all right. Fathers, mothers, etc. will all want to view the current situation in Belfast. Find out what inanities Reagan is planning next and discover who else Mrs. Thatcher has put out of work. <laughs> oh, God, I'm talking about political. <laughs> Gary, you little firebrand. You little Marxist. The Billy Bragg of Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> He's probably a bit like Rick Mayle's character from The Young Ones. Dear Mr. Echo. Still, if your folks enjoy violence, you could tell them that the Tribe of Gum episodes have lots of people with crushed heads and things. Crikey. <laughs> Uh, having never seen it, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, good on you, Gary. Uh, now, he goes on to say, uh, who saw the last series of a Sapphire and Steel then? Magic, wasn't it? Who was he talking to? Uh, just the type of story that could work in Doctor Who. Ooh, is that the hint of a criticism? So come on, BBC, let's see Don Houghton write another story soon. Uh, someone called Tony Reid also had a hand in it as well. Now, if only he could write another story in that vein. Uh, well, that's mm. true. That is true. Gary goes on by saying, Isn't it strange how Peter Davison is already accepted by the press and general public as Doctor Who, ages before he'll even be seen on the telly? All credit to JNT. All hail JNT, you might as well have said. <laughs> All credit to JNT for pushing for good publicity and gaining well from it. Something tells me next season is going to be great. Even better than the last. Something tells me, Gary, that you're wrong. <laughs> My only hope is that with a better budget and new cast, we can return to the days of monsters galore, invasions, and all the other things, like having heads crushed, Gary, perhaps, uh, which faded out after the 13th and 14th seasons. Or would you rather carry on the recent trend of humanoid villains and masterminds? Write and tell me, because I think that'd be helpful to all and everyone. Finally, watch out in Castrovelva for actor Dallas Cavell, last seen dying at the hands of an ambassador of death. Till next month, Gary. Well, actually, it does bring up a very good point, though, that uh, when Davison was announced, actually, I think it was probably when they saw him in the, in the cricket gear. I, well, there was, a, I think, a general acceptance 
that of, that he was the doctor and, and relatively happy with the with the concept of the cricketer and everything like that? For a, obviously, from a public perspective, because the ratings went shut up. A little bit of a backlash, I suppose, from people who, you know, Dr. Vet and all that sort of thing. Um, perhaps too young for the role, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I think by and large, by the time he left, Davo was uh, definitely accepted in the role. Agree. Looking back, his run of 20, 21 stories is pretty solid, more or less. I mean, there's some clangers, as they would experience in his first series. <laughs> Or season, but um, yeah, I think uh, Davo did uh, as well as you could expect under JNT's uh, regime. He came out of it pretty well, actually, and he left at the right time. He did, unlike the others. <laughs> Both of them were showing the exit, weren't they? Really, just in different ways. Well, that's true. One by brute force, and one by stealth. Mm. Now you love a bit of archive stuff, don't you? Love a bit of old television, please. Extraordinary clip. My thanks to member Ian Beard for telling me that on the Yorkshire television program Extraordinary People, guest Duncan Goodhue claimed to be a Doctor Who fan and they showed a lengthy clip from episode 5 of Dalek Invasion of Earth. For those of you who missed it, Ian adds that the show may be repeated in a few months' time. Watch out for it. How starved. How starved were fans back in the uh, in the 80s for any into the uh, the show's history at that point, Mark. It may be repeated, so watch out for it. So you have to scour the radio times or the TV times and hope that it, it turns up again. Uh, I, I put this picture on the next page, Rob. It's, it's called a Gallifrey issue 15 of a fan saying, yep. I've got a picture here, and I'll put this up on the blog when we, when we post this episode. There is a picture here of a cricketer. Mm-hmm. Whose face does that look like? It's not Peter Davison's face, that's for sure. The hair makes me think of Colin Baker, but I might be wrong. Yes, this picture mm. was predicting Colin Baker. Oh, that's spooky, Mark. That is spooky. That's actually sent a chill up and down my spine. Are they multiplying? Yeah, I looked at this and I said, hold on, that's predicting Colin Baker in the opening minutes of Twin Dilemma with a cricket bat mm. launching towards Perry. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> it is. I would assume that that's a, someone has drawn that from a photo still uh, from an actual cricketer. Yes, it's supposed to be Peter Davison, allegedly, but mm. it looks more like Colin Baker. So mm. uh, this uh, this Picasso, Geraint Jones. Oh, yes. From Carnarvon, Gwynedd, North Wales. Did you um, ever read Gallifrey, the fanzine, Mark? Not that one. I read the local one. Oh, yeah. Remember that one? Oh, the stories I could tell about Let's Not Do Oh, that. yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I actually wrote for that. I had a couple of um, things in it. No good. Now, Rob, let's have a look at the uh, TV shows in 1981. Yes. Only Fools and Horses. Never seen it. Have no interest. Oh, really? Mm. I've been watching. We're watching them actually on the side. It's quite good. It's not ah, bad. Okay. The BBC are doing an archi- uh, documentary, I think, about it uh, coming soon. Are they? Yes. Yeah, it is a good show. I like it, actually. The goodies, and I've put in brackets, ITV reboot. Mostly okay. Yeah, mostly okay. Dynasty? Or was it Dynasty? It's correctly pronounced Dynasty. Um, I do remember watching it, and I don't know why I was watching it, but anyway. What about Simon and Simon? I remember watching some of Simon and Simon, but I, I can't for the life of you tell you anything about what it's about. A, a, a police procedural something? They had moustaches. It was the 80s, mate. Hill Street Blues? Yes, I remember watching that and being slightly confused about how adult it seemed, but uh, yes. Mm. Tenko. Did you watch that one? That was quite good. Uh, unless I'm confusing photos with memories of actually watching it, but I understand it's very good. Hmm. Kingswood Country, Mark. It's an Australian comedy. Mm. I think last time it was repeated in this country, it, was, it went for like 10 minutes because it's completely inappropriate. <laughs> it's more love thy neighbour than uh, mind your language. Oh, we'll go with that then. Yes, we'll go with that. Hitchhikers, the TV version. Yeah, yes. what do you think of that? I loved it. 
I loved it yeah. then and I still love it today. Uh, Blake Seven season four was the, the final season, which everybody bags, well, a lot of people bag, but I actually think it's actually pretty good, apart from two stories. Mm. And there's that ending, mate, that ending. Betrayed me. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> Hello, Dave and Richard. You're, the, you're a man of a thousand voices, Mark. What can I say? Come calling. We need a new uh, third doctor. <laughs> I posted this in our chat. What happens when the recast of the third doctor dies? Do they get another recast? Yes. Wait for the call, okay? Wait by your phone. Now, the fall guy? Yeah. Who was a fellow who played the $6 million man? Oh, what's his name? Lee Majors. I enjoyed that. That was fun. That was just a fun, silly romp of a show. Does it have a locklear in it? Uh, let's just say yes, because she was around in that era. Mm. And she appeared in a lot of stuff. Greatest American Hero, I enjoyed for its, was it 17 episodes before it was unceremoniously cut down? I thought it went longer than that. Ah. Was it only one year or two years? I can't remember. Yeah, you might be right, mate. I think it might be two years, but it's not many. It's a handful of episodes. When you work out how to use a suit, it's like, what's the point? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The next one is a country practice, a long, long running Australian rural drama. Yes, I think it was shipped over to the UK, not to South Africa, Mm. though, but uh, definitely shown in the UK, I believe. And, uh, Remember when Molly died? When the screen just went black? Scared a generation of kids, I can tell you now. Is she dying? Oh, she's dead. Oh, crock. Crocky. bit like a Doctor Who equivalent of Earthshock episode four, mm. when the credits are going in silence. Back in the day when tens of millions of people would watch television. As opposed to tens. A communal yeah. event. Uh, now, there's the other one here. You've got the Kenny Everett television show, ITV to BBC. But he vaunted over from ITV to BBC and uh, started a long reign over there. Mm-hmm. She did some good stuff on that uh, in the BBC. I used to like uh, Reg Prescott and uh, what's that lady? They're all done in the best possible taste. <laughs> yes, I know the one. I can see. Yes. Just... Uh, oh, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, wrapping up 1981 TV shows is Day of the Triffids. Yes. The cosy catastrophe. It's a bit harrowing, isn't it? When everyone goes blind and they're stumbling around in the street. A bit like now, isn't it really? Yes. Hmm. It was actually a pretty good adaption to that one. BBC. Uh, did they do it recently? Did they... I think they did actually, yes. Okay. Yeah. I haven't watched it. Damning with faint praise. All right. And now, Mark, stop press for November 1981. Now, this would be uh, great news for J.R. Southall. Script editor Eric Saywood will certainly be continuing into the 20th season. The repeats will not have a Radio Times feature, but will be mentioned on the highlights page. Castrovalva's cast includes Michael Sherd of Ark slash Mind of Evil slash Pyramids of Mars slash Invisible Enemy fame. Now, do you want some target news, Rob? Give me some target news. Now, this is very interesting. So first of all, again, we've got the jagged... Font. Font, yes, yes in Letraset slash Stencil. I'm greatly indebted to Damien Timmer of Chelsea, who's lucky enough to actually receive a reply from WH Allen. Below are the covers for the new Auton Invasion and Warriors Gatebook. But who is John Lykander? And also the Doctor Who quiz book from Star, a paperback. Damien also informs me that the Keeper of Traken is due in paperback in May, thus the hardcover ought to be out in time for Christmas. Damien has also seen the cover for Day of the Daleks, features a line of Daleks and two Frontier and Space Ogrons, i.e. the costumes are wrong. The windows are wrong, the costumes are wrong. It's all wrong, Mark. The continuity is wrong. The paperback of Stato Decay is also out, which presumably indicates that a soft cover Warrior's Gate should also materialise quite soon. Damien points out that both Pirate Planet and City of Death by Doug Adams are on the publication list, mm. as are The Crotons and Evil of the Daleks, both by Terence Dix. He also reports that Leisure Hive by David Fisher is due out in hardback next May. 
Peter Baines has also said to me that City of Death is on the schedule, so 1982 looks more promising than 1981. It's also worth noting that Alan appears to be relying on the original scripter for the novel, i.e. Fisher, Dixon, Byrne, for the 18th season. I understand that Smith and Bidmead have shown interest in their stories. Well, Byrne didn't do it. But very interesting that they that they said that uh, Pirate Planet and City of Death will be out in 82, mm. and that um, Terence is working on the Crotons, and Evil of the Daleks in those years. And we know Crotons came out in 85. Assuming Evil was even true, maybe the nation mm. people stepped on it. That Doug Adams thing was very unlikely, given that he was in the midst of hitchhiker fame and the money was laughable what they're offering him. Yes. Maybe they're just making random stuff up, do you reckon? There may be a little bit of that. Mark. As we begin to wrap up 1981, let's have a look at the, uh, because we've covered, you know, movies and television, let's look at that other great pop culture uh, obsession, music. So this is the top 10 singles for Australia in 81. Now, you're the music person. I, I have no taste whatsoever. So coming in <laughs> at number 10 is uh, Kids in America by Kim Wilde. Love that song. Great song. Great pop song. Uh, number nine. Who Can It Be Now by Men at Work. Who Can It Be Now? Cuckoo. Okay. Uh, Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Oh, I just want to gag. Yeah, vile. Um, Nine to Five by Sheena Easton. That's a lovely song. I like that. They had to call it Morning Train because of the uh, Dolly Parton uh, uh, Nine to Five song as well. So that's put Morning Train as a uh, subtitle for people to understand. Coming in at number six with a bullet was uh, Betty Davis' Eyes by Kim Carnes. Classic. Great track. Rejected by so many singers before Kim Carnes got her hand on it. What are people thinking? Number five, Mark. Devo Live, an EP by Devo. I don't know who Devo are, I must admit. <laughs> so I imagine a, a live version of Whip It was on there. <laughs> Maybe Beautiful World, I don't know. Ah, that Devo. Okay. All right. At number four... Jealous Guy by Roxy Music. John Lennon tribute there. Oh, okay. It's quite nice, actually. Very good tribute, actually. But number three, Mark. Ant Music by Adam and the Ants. Didn't Adam and the Ants, they flared so briefly and yet so memorably. They were there one day and gone the next. Really remarkable. I think by 82, he had a solo career going with a couple of songs. And I think by the end of it, didn't he appear at Highlander TV show and was caught shoplifting? <laughs> I don't know. The highs and lows of stardom. I oh, know. Terrible. Number two, Mark. Stars on 45. The Beatles won before they went into the ABBA one. Everybody started doing medleys and, and things by then, didn't they? But he hooked on classics. Oh, okay. There's a whole stack of them. Sounds awful. It's overplayed. Okay. I'll have to look that one up. I'll go to YouTube shortly. And coming in at number one, Mark, was... Counting the Beat by the Swingers. Now, all our international listeners are going, what the hell's this? What the hell is it, Mark? It's an Australian song by the Swingers, which was, uh, I think, comprised of some ex-members of Split Ends. Ah. It's actually a very good song. Interesting. Oh, that one? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that is not bad. I like that. It's good. Oh, now I've got it in my head and it'll never go away. God damn it. So that's your music news. Top 10 for 1981. Yes, but the only thing I didn't mention because it wasn't in the top 10 in Australia that year was uh, Duran Duran's debut album. Uh, Duran Duran was launched to an unsuspecting public. And there's actually nothing off the Human League's Dare album on here either. That's bizarre, isn't it? Well, you know. Don't You Want Me Baby's not on there. I love that one. Yeah. I might go away now and just listen to you it. You were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, weren't you? Not really. 
Let's have a look at Celestial Toy Room in December 1981. Yes. Again, it's more shuddery here. It's got some quick, rapid topics here. Number one, story six next season is penned by script editor Eric Sayward and is called Earthshock. Earthshock. Excellent. Director is Peter Grimrad and stars Beryl Reed as Briggs and it's got exclamation mark. Yeah, they were surprised as we were. <laughs> Claire Clifford as Kyle and James Warwick as Scott. Hit number two is Peter Grimrad has turned his talents to writing and story seven, as yet untitled, will be directed by Black Orchid director Ron Jones. No guest cast yet. No, and let's keep it like that. Mm. Uh, number three, Marvel were wrong. Wrong. When they suggested that the last month's Lord Mayor's show was Peter Davison's first publicity stunt, that honour goes to Hastings' It's a Knockout in October. A remarkable. Mm. Says member Peter Jones of Brighton, Peter says spent much of the afternoon in front of a terrible cardboard TARDIS signing autographs. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Jones, that is. And ironically, Peter Davison, 40 years later, is still doing the same thing now. Yes, no, nothing <laughs> changes. Hit number four, Andy Lane, perhaps the writer of East Ham, informs me that John Lydecker, pseudonym used by Gallagher for the Warriors Gate novelettes, novelettes, is a character out of one of Gallagher's radio plays called An Alternative to Suicide which is otherwise known as Life. No, well, that's not very fair. That book had a lot of stuff cut out of it. They've put it back in the audio reading. I've got to actually listen to it. Okay. Damning the faint praise there, right? It is. David Howe tells me that Beryl Reed said in the press recently, I play Briggs, a tough commander of a spaceship in three episodes of Doctor Who. Unquote. Mm. And full stop. Yes. Hit six. Watch out in Black Orchid for Ivor Salter, last seen in the Space Museum. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't really sort of sell it, does it really? Last scene in the Space Museum. Correct. Yeah, brilliant. Number seven, also in BO. Now there's an unfortunate abbreviation. Mm. Wait for a marvellous and dangerous stunt involving the best Errol Flynn style, a mystery figure swinging across a room via the, and it's... They can't spell chandelier. <laughs> they've tried to spell crystal chandelier, but they've actually gone XXX all over it. Yes. Uh, light thingies and crashing through the blazing wall. That's supposed to be news. <laughs> okay, that's news. Okay, fantastic. They're grasping at straws here. All right, and number eight. With the exception of Johnny Byrne and Terence Dudley, and I love how they've actually had to write in, uh, handwrite in Terence's name, all target novelettes, again with the novelettes, will be wow. penned by their authors, others by, who else? Terence Dix. And remember, Terence, always lodge your tax return on an annual basis. Exactly. And just before we wrap up uh, this uh, coverage, Mark, we look at uh, another article in uh, Celestial Toy Room's December 1981 issue. Merry Christmas to everyone back in 1981. I'm sure the living under the shadow of uh, nuclear holocaust uh, made your Christmas extremely cheery. Um, we have this article in CT written by one Peter Angelides, uh, all uh, those people who read the uh, Doctor Who uh, New Adventures and Missing Adventures uh, back in the day would know of Peter's work. Uh, Peter is also something of a satirist, uh, perhaps, or just coverage of the Doctor Who Weekly magazine. Now, the, this is headed Doctor Who Weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y, so this will give you a sense of where Peter's coming from. It begins, uh, Doctor Who Weekly, a personal view of the new weekly Doctor Who magazine from Marvel. Does Doctor Who Weekly annoy you as much as it does me, asks uh, Peter. I was initially suspicious of the magazine which I saw advertised in the national press. It's a kitty rag, he says in quotes. I hazarded at once. But I bought issue one to give it a fair review. 
Uh, in brackets, Mark, I wonder what he did with the uh, transfers. Did he actually iron them onto his clothing? I reckon he would have definitely peeled those <laughs> off and uh, got a white T-shirt out and off. He went with the iron or you know rubbed them out on the onto whatever paper there was at the time. Not onto the front of his wife fronts, perhaps, or anyway. you know, would have made the, the Tom Baker wife fronts a little bit more interesting. That fact is lost to the mists of time. <laughs> so we'll just move on. Uh, and to my surprise, Peter says I found that it was not completely correct. Um, okay, the magazine was not totally aimed at youngsters and treated the program fairly seriously. What attracted me to the weekly initially was the photographic content and the news that J. Jeremy Bentham would be contributing a series of Stinfo-type articles. Uh, Mark, do you know, is that Star Trek info, I suppose that is? David Howe uh, used to do the... It was almost like an archive section of the uh, Doctor Who Appreciation Society and would call up these uh, Stinfo, like a, basically a, a, a couple of pages with a story overview of, of lost stories such as the invasion and things like that that they had no chance of ever watching ever again. Ever, ever again. And so he basically used the collective fandom brain of the of the Dwas, got together and managed to pull something together. Very nice. I probably went to Ian Levine's exercise books where he wrote everything down in chapter and verse. Exactly. Actually, I learned today, Mark, by going through a, a Doctor Who fanzine's Facebook page mm-hmm. that uh, Gary Russell... Uh, commented that back in the day, uh, fans or fanzines, uh, up until a certain point, the, f- the reproduction of the photographs was pretty poor. Uh, so, you know, I suppose um, at this stage, seeing them in black and white or sharp black and white or even colour would have been something that, uh, you know, as Peter says, uh, was something to be, um, you know, chased after or looked at. Uh, yeah. Remember the old days we used to watch pirate Doctor Who videos, the black and white stuff? You'd be yes. um, off locks and all over the place yes. and, and snowstorms, even though you weren't watching 10th Planet. It's like Restoration Team got hold of these photos. And amazingly enough, you could actually see what was going on. He goes on, uh, though, so these Stinfo type articles uh, was enough to send me scurrying to place an order. In fact, too, because those photographs which you cut from one side often ruin photos on the other side. At this stage, I was delighted with the magazine, and J.J. Bentham's articles were consistently excellent, if somewhat inaccurate on occasions. Mm. So they're either consistently excellent or they're not, Peter. Which, is, which one is it, son? <laughs> uh, the only bugbear was, and I feel that many will agree, that the Tales from the Tardis comic strip was a cheat for two reasons. Firstly, it was an old and inferior serialisation of excellent stories, and secondly, the magazine is a Doctor Who weekly. The interjection of a newly retitled old comic strip was annoying in the least. Um... Now, Peter goes on to say, uh, after some uh, smashing of uh, some more comic strip news, uh, more distressing for me, however, was the rapid degeneration of the J. Jeremy Bentham history series. I could understand splitting a six-part story into two serialised parts, but then he split up the Time Meddler one. Then Galaxy 4. Simultaneously, the narrative style changed to an inferior semi-novelisation, complete with crack and whoosh as special effects. Firstly, the splits. Perhaps Mr. Bentham realised that his stay would be short if he whipped off the whole series in 100 plus issues, or two years. But by splitting the four-part adventures like this, he'll be going strong in 1987! Still living under the shadow of that nuclear holocaust. <laughs> uh, and then in brackets, uh, wait till we reach Master Plan and see how many parts you can chop that into. Uh, is this really Mr. Bentham's work, I ask myself, or is Des Skin Westmacotting his original drafts? Now, Westmacotting, Peter goes on to explain, uh, is a term he coined after reading uh, Tim Westmacott's letter in Celestial Tour Room, which explained that his letter to DWW, which he sent on the day of its launch, was printed in issue 14, but with all the adverse comment neatly excised. In other words, it was shaped to fit the overall shape of, uh, who cares, uh, a jam page of eulogies. Hmm, interesting. All right, so uh, there is, uh, even back then, Mark, there's uh, some polishing of, uh, uh, or massaging of uh, uh, letters and news and information. Yes. 
fake news almost, isn't it? Really? It is. Now, uh, Peter says in some, some somewhat stark terms, in my opinion, Doctor Who Weekly is now the kitty rag I first feared it would be. Um, as a kitty rag, however, it serves its purpose. Okay. Younger children like it, although this may be because it, it is basically a simple format. With its childish comic strips and crack and whoosh, it is now a TV version of the Beano. Did you ever read the Beano, Mark? I did. I loved the Beano and Dandy and, and Wizard and Chips and all those uh, comics. I used to get the annuals every Christmas. Okay. Two, two or three of the annuals and they were great. I think I saw some of them. They reached, out, reached Australia. I, I never had any time for them. I just, I don't know. Even then, I was a snob. You're missing a lot. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Yeah, they were great. Okay. Oh, good. Are they still going? Do we know? I believe so. But a lot of them have merged together, I think. Okay. Well, look, when we you sort of do our spin-off 42 to Beano, we'll cover those in, in greater depth. <laughs> All right. So Peter goes on, the only reason I continue to buy it is because I feel it is cheaper to cut it to pieces for the photographs. <laughs> Uh, than to buy the stills from elsewhere. If all this seems to have been an unmitigated attack on Marvel's publication, let me say that is not intended that way. I just feel that Marvel has not come up to expectations this time. If all my article has done is bring more comment to bear on the weekly, it will have achieved something. For as we have seen, it cannot bear to publish criticism of itself. For me, Doctor Who Weekly is a classic example of an ambition unfulfilled, a splendid chance which was carelessly wasted, a step in the right direction which resulted in a tumble headlong. You can see, Mark, with these um, uh, metaphors, similes, whatever the word is, he's destined to write for Doctor Who. Been James Baker the new series. Moving on, uh, the letters page, the herein much blind, who cares, has published several letters from older readers in praise of the magazine. Uh, in quotes, he says, "I've waited 16 years for a really good Doctor Who magazine to arrive." They say, "It seems that I will be waiting a while longer." Peter Angelides. Interesting. I was just going to say you could replace Doctor Who Weekly with Doctor Who Adventures and have the same sort of. Uh criticism thrown at it. Doctor Who Adventures lasted for a little bit, didn't it? I think so. And then didn't Panay buy it or off the BBC or somebody like that? And I think it's just died now. The series is no longer popular with the mass audience, so and the kiddies. What was your favourite run of Doctor Who magazine? I got into Doctor Who magazine in around issue... Sometime in the 80s, there's that shot on the cover of uh, Peter Davison from Caves of Androzani. So it's his sort of like a headshot. Um, and then there's a grey background. It's, it's really a, it grabs you that particular photo they chose. I think it was June or July 1984, that run. So I picked that up. I mean, I'd flirted with buying it, uh, you know, in the year beforehand. I'd seen a copy uh, in a suburb here in Melbourne and didn't get it. And there was another, uh, strangely enough, in my hometown, a sort of genre, a, a, a proto-minotaur had opened up. And it was a little little shop in an, in an arcade full of science fiction and fantasy and stuff like that. And they had an issue of it, but I, again, I didn't actually buy it, so... Um, yeah, but eventually I bought it from the local uh, news agency. And as you've been tweeting, I think this week, uh, we used to get them three months later than uh, the UK. We did. You get your July issue uh, in October. I'm assuming they were the unsold copies from the UK um, news agencies. I don't think they were. No. No. Do you think they were actual print uh, runs that were put aside and sent out? Yeah, that's how I think it, it worked back then. With Maybe they were put on a slow ship through uh, the Suez Canal. Via Gordon and Gotch. Hmm. I wonder if Gordon and Gotch are still around. But anyway, uh, we I, I digress. So in answer to your question, Mark, um, that initial run, I think I lasted with it for four or five years and then I went to university hmm. and uh, I ran university. I sort of gave it up for a couple of years and then I got back into it with, I think, there was the DWM issue that covered Power of the Daleks, which is around well, the high 170s or sometime in the 180s. And I saw that at uh, my local news agency and I picked it up again. And then I just ran with it for, you know, I think it was about 300 issues. Mm. So my run 
really the bit that I really enjoyed was uh, during the 90s when the show wasn't on mm. uh, and it really did delve I mean the Andrew Pixley archives were an essential read for all Doctor Who nerds mm. um, and the comic strip even I was quite uh, entertained by um, yeah so that sort of um, 15 years uh, just after and, and into the new series and then after that it became way more corporate and it sort of began to toe the party line uh, much more strongly so I sort of gave up on it you know, about six or seven years ago Yeah, there's no sort of criticism level that uh, the series or the magazine that was printed that I remember Some of the reviews might have been a little bit what's the word buttered up in terms of their negative comments around it But Even during the 90s I mean it was very rare to see the magazine criticise well, the only time that I ever read the magazine uh, criticise uh, the BBC was when uh, Gary Russell penned a page uh, lamenting the fact that the, the, the Dark Dimension had basically fallen over. Mm. Um, and I, was, I remember sitting in my car because I picked it up at Minotaur and, and reading it and just being astonished that the authorised magazine was taking the people who held its licence to task uh, in such a manner. And look, I suppose... Given where we were four years after the show was cancelled, uh, there had been you know a, a lot of hope that the show would come back because it had sort of been promised that it would be you know rested, retooled, and you know relaunched. And the doctor mentioned for all of it, for what, you know whatever flaws it had, uh, you know hopefully was something that we could you know everyone could come around and celebrate 30 years of the show. Not to be Gary cracked it big time. I do urge you to go and find it. Well, I think uh, when I first started buying it regularly, 83, definitely 84, there were some great articles there, plus the whole season 21, there was a great build-up to the, uh, to that season. And then the excitement about the reveal of Colin Baker as the Doctor, the horror of the next issue, which showed the costume. Who can forget the, when they get to issue 100, the show gets cancelled. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. Uh, I kept buying it during the, the late 80s and sort of stopped in, in, in the early 90s. Got back into it in the late 90s and, and kept on going because the articles about the series, the wilderness years, actually was the best time in terms of research and, and information and interviews about the show. Did start getting it, the show came back, but like you, I was sort of reading it and uh, yeah, it just turned into more of a um, travel brochure really about how great the new series is. The Card of Pravda was an apt <laughs> yeah, so basically I've stopped getting it. I mean, I still read it occasionally, but really it's just more like flicking through it. Occasionally to have a really good article about the old series. But um, yeah, the comic strip is now just a couple of pages and uh, of a story with a couple of um, illustrations now, which I think is quite sad. Well, they've had to cut it back, haven't they? I think for, 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 for monetary reasons, yeah. for financial reasons. Um, I think the magazine has been hit hard by COVID, the COVID pandemic and people's inability. Well, up you know in the UK up until a couple of months ago anyway to, to get out and about so mm. yeah it's sad I mean I hope I, you know I hope DWM uh, continues I mean I was thinking about this a couple of days ago it's 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 now over 40 years old which is I mean you know there were plenty of uh, women's magazines that are decades older than that but uh, for a genre magazine to have lasted so long mm. um, is really astonishing and it, you know one that's devoted solely to one program yeah, uh, it makes it even more astonishing. So special they're doing now, you know, those sort of directing who or whatever that particularly think they're great. But I have been actually enjoying this sort of the, the retrospectives of the years. The Chronicles. Yeah, the Chronicles. They've been fantastic, and they've just announced they're doing one of uh, 1983. So I'm looking forward to reading that because uh, 20th anniversary. Happy times and places, Rob. So Rob, that was 1981. We went 
through a lot there. Uh, any key highlights or where do you sort of get a sense of that year and especially in, in terms of, of Doctor Who? There's a sense for me, Mark, you know, in, 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 the, in the fanzine articles that we've looked at, and especially, I suppose, Celestial Toy Room uh, that we've been looking at for that year, there's a real sense of vibrancy. I mean, uh, there's also, you know, there's, there's vibrancy around the, the show's future. Um, you know, everyone's keen to see uh, what Peter Davison makes of the role. Uh, and there's, there's still a lot of interest and, and, and I suppose, love or respect uh, for JNT, uh, which would obviously drain away the longer he remained in the role, unfortunately. Um, there's the usual, I don't know, there's the usual carping, um, I think, that, you know, that fans have, have always had. I mean, you know, we well remember the reaction to the Deadly Assassin, you know, six or seven years before our coverage here. Um, but overall, I think, you know, the fandom is alive, fandom has an opinion, fandom is willing to express that opinion in all its, you know, different uh, facets. Um, it would have been an interesting time to be, you know, uh, a fan, you know, uh, b- back in 81. What do you make of it? Uh, new beginnings, Rob. The, uh, the Tom Baker era is fading away. As you pointed out, the articles are a mixture of uh, excitement, a bit of fawning, but also, you know, building it up to the debut of a new Doctor and a new, potentially a new approach to the series, but obviously a new crew. There's a slight reflection towards the old, but looking forward to what comes next. And actually, I think um, for a lot of fans who are writing at this point, uh, would this have been their first regenerations, you know, that they could remember? Uh, I mean, you know, Gary Russell is writing, and he, he was born clearly in the late 60s. J. Jeremy Bentham, you know, was born, you know, probably in the early 60s, um, or even the late 50s, actually. But, but I think a lot of fans at this point who were reading fanzines were, uh, you know, not aware of uh, when, when Pertwee uh, left, left the role. So uh, you can understand there's probably a degree of trepidation uh, as well for fans in 81 who grew up, you know, with Tom Baker, who was such a charismatic, you know, filled the screen to... to to have that person depart would have been, I suppose, distressing for some, as we see these days. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these fans would be their first regeneration, so there might have been a sense that he's been there too long. You've got the new producer throwing his weight around and the script editor as well, so really, unfortunately, Tom was the, the relic that uh, needed to be moved on. Get a new actor to take his place, so yeah, exciting times, Rob. Very exciting, and so exciting, Mark, that we're now going to move on to fan letters from the era. That's right, Rob. So get the plunger, get the hot shower going, and get the Radox and the uh, Brillo pad, because now we're going to get stuck into the letters from 1981. You've got mail. So, Mark, we're looking at fan letters uh, published uh, in 81. Is that right? That's correct. So these are from the TARDIS uh, magazine. Think of it as the Zorinza to the uh, Celestial Toy Room, where every quarter they used to put together a more chunkier magazine, lots of articles, lots of fan fiction, but of course the most interesting part is the fan letters page. Go through ones which I found quite interesting and hopefully our listeners find interesting as well. So the first one, now this is TARDIS uh, volume 6 number 1 if you want to go through to to your uh, collection people. Uh, This is from uh, Steve Miles from a rather bizarrely named place, uh, Kenilworth. Where's Kenilworth Mark? No idea. No idea. Next to Kettlewell maybe? Yeah maybe, maybe. Everyone's hair is upright. At the moment it is, because we haven't been to bloody hairdressers for over eight weeks. <laughs> yes. All right, so uh, Steve begins, Over the last few years, I've read a great deal about Tom Baker's contribution to Doctor Who. It can be divided into two categories, those that praise his efforts and those who constantly put him down. Sadly, it's been my experience that the latter has been the case of the publications of the Society. Tom has been accused of turning the program into some sort of poor comedy, of overacting, of not taking it seriously enough, and of being a very poor interpretation of the Doctor. 
Anyone picking up a copy of Celestial, Celestial Toy Room or TARDIS for the first time will get the impression that this is the overall opinion of the society and its membership. While I appreciate that everyone is entitled to their opinion, I feel the time has come for a more balanced viewpoint. All too often the comments are of a negative nature. Are you really sure that the vast number of members are delighted that Tom is leaving the program? I'm not. I feel that Tom has been creative in the role, exploring different aspects of the complex character of the Doctor, for the most part showing aspects of the Doctor's personality that only John Pertwee came close to revealing. We all owe Mr Baker a great deal, for it's conceivable that without him, Doctor Who could now be a memory of the past and that we wouldn't be looking forward to the 19th season. So Mark, Steve, uh, make some um, some uh, pungent comments there. Uh, what, did, what do you think? Well, really, if he's talking about poor comedy overacting, he's just talking about one season, really. Uh, and unfortunately, that season is very, very uh, recent and in some cases raw to some of those viewers who are watching their favourite program and what is he on about? Look, Tom Baker's was there for obviously seven years, three different producers, three different interpretations of the of the role, really. You've got the obviously the Hinchcliffe of the horror, the Williams of the comedy, then sort of veering towards the end of Vaudeville, and then snap back uh, into a mixture of between uh, Grumpy and Morose. Uh, unfortunately, I think you know that, that season 17 at the time was slated, as we obviously went through our, uh, from Australian perspective, so that the, the UK went, were equally uh, even more vocal around the um, what they saw as not a very good season. I Ironically, though, I believe the uh, uh, the trailer for the uh, new Blu-ray is being filmed as we speak, Rob. The season 17 Blu-ray box set, is that correct, Matt? Yes, can't be that bad. For all its uh, slating, uh, I do look forward to seeing season 17 uh, for a bit of a reappraisal. It's fun. Creature from the Pit is problematic. <laughs> For many reasons. Here's a great thing about Doctor Who. You could just reappraise it over time where your views at the time were very uh, forthright. And now with the journey of time and, and, and hopefully with Mellow, some of us, Rob, maybe, I don't know. Yep. As I said, if I can enjoy season 24 now, God help us. All right, so the next letter mark is from... Richard Charlton from Leicester, who says, I don't know how it's possible that a Doctor Who fan can call the immediate past season crap. I found the series most enjoyable and the most intelligent since the 15th season. How could anyone believe that the 17th season was good? Graham Williams nearly destroyed the legend that is Doctor Who. It took John Nathan Turner to return the program to its, its former glory. Thank Rassilon that both Canine and Romana have gone. Lala Ward was the worst companion ever. And, and, and just looking at the editorial, who goes... I wouldn't subscribe to the statement that Miss, about Miss Ward, although I must admit that Mary Tam had one or two points going for her as well. It's interesting, isn't it? So basically... Uh, Season 18 is um, being lauded, being a vast improvement from the previous one. I think Ian Levine said a quote that basically, I think in the early 80s, they were, uh, like I, Claudius, trying to bury Graham Williams and, and, and hail uh, Caesar, i.e. John Nathan Turner. This is from my namesake, Robert, Robert Reynolds from Wolverhampton. Mark, where is Wolverhampton? Uh, near the Wolves. Excellent. A lot of speculation will concern the Watcher from Logopolis. Where did he come from? If this is never made clear... My theory is that the Time Lords, facing the biggest threat in the universe since the Omega Crisis, found that the Doctor was involved and decided to help. Instead of sending earlier incarnations as they did before and breaking their own laws, they took a copy of the Doctor's mind uh, from the last time he was on Gallifrey or after the deadly assassin and the invasion of time and created an unstable body for it. As there would not be two Doctors after the crisis was over, it was arranged that the real Doctor should absorb the copy as the Master did to Tremas. Remember, the fourth Doctor's last words were, it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. 
The Watcher may have also carried the body print for the Doctor's next self, who might just be, therefore, a little more responsive to the Time Lord requests than presently. Um, that's just... We think that some continuity is gobbledygook, Mark. This is this is off the charts. Is that fan wank gone too far, Rob? This may actually be a nominee for fan wank of the year award. <laughs> I think Dave Kidgett had his locked in in March. <laughs> <laughs> we could add it to the uh, the very vast pile. Well, fan theories uh, come thick and fast, don't they? So uh, this, you know, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else, also in the letters columns of uh, TARDIS. Uh, there are some doozies that come across the editor's desk. You might not be off the mark, though. You think about it. Remember uh, Planet of the Spiders with Cho G uh, and he's doing all that sort of crazy stuff? True. So potentially he, it could be. Could be. Well, you know, look, maybe Chibnall is actually, you know, listening and will have gone, mm-hmm. he's already written the stories anyway, so you can't botch it up any more than that. You did say written. That's a very generous term, Rob. Right. The next one's from Tim Munro. I've got from no idea, Mark, you know but I, Tim Munro's name is familiar. <laughs> Tim starts with, well done on your organisation of the letters page in TARDIS. It's getting better all the time. I think that Stephen Miles is totally wrong when he says that without Tom Baker, Doctor Who could now be only a memory. I know plenty of people who refuse to watch the programme because of Baker's portrayal. I can only hope that Peter Davison can recapture the old audiences of the early Baker years when Philip Hinchcliffe was producer. To Betty Tedderman, I would uh, say that Tom Baker's acting has improved. It isn't just sudden hypocrisy on the part of the Dwass. Besides, I think that Tom has only improved because of John Nathan Turner's influence. Richard Charlton is right about Romana. I'd say that Lyle Ward wasn't a very good actress. Adric, Nissa, and Tegan are far better and brilliantly played. Matthew Waterhouse deserves an Oscar for bringing Adric to life. With Peter Davison, a brilliant actor, if ever there was one, in the lead role, new trio of companions, and the absence of that robot dog, how could Jeez. the new season wow. fail? Wow. Whoa, very praising of Matthew Waterhouse. <laughs> Oscar worthy performances, Adric. Uh, Oscar worthy, uh, is that uh, only slightly. slightly generous? Only slightly, Mark, I think. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> Oscar worthy, really. If you had to rate the um, companions and all the performance... Geez, it's hard, it? isn't it? <sighs> Some people say that Matthew Waterhouse worked better with Tom Baker solo. Um, so in that regard, there are you know better performances from Matthew Waterhouse in that particular period. Janet Fielding has taken does get on my nerves sometimes but I think her leaving scene was you know demonstrated that she could sort of handle more dramatic fare um I know um Sarah Sutton uh you know had a had a had a good career as a child actress and sort of I don't know Mark you can sense that I, I have no idea here maybe Fielding Sutton and Waterhouse from top to bottom how about I make it easy for you snog uh, marry or avoid uh, how old was Sarah Sutton back then yeah, we'll go with that. Nineteen. Uh, uh, what were you asking me that sort of question for, Mark? Um, okay, so why not? <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to answer that question. To be honest, <laughs> we'll just leave that one to the imagination of the listeners. All right. So the next one, Mark, from John Kahane, uh, from Ontario, which I definitely know is in Canada. Uh, the Confederation of Are Canada. You sure, Rob? Yes, definitely Ontario. It may even be. It's no Ottawa is the capital. I think. It is. This week it is? Okay. This week? Yeah, I think so. No. No. (laughs) Have we bought any subs off them? They may start buying subs themselves, Marco. Who knows? All right. So, John. Beauty, eh? 
Take off. If anyone knows what I'm talking about, please write back to us. Uh, now that the 18th season of Doctor Who has come to a close, I thought that a little retrospective comment would be in order, as I am one of the very few North Americans to have seen all of Tom Baker's years as the Doctor. Pirate video. Well, uh, does he have Marco Polo? Because apparently it was shown somewhere in Canada at some point. Is that correct? Allegedly. Mm. Mm. All right. Let's track this fellow down. Uh, by far, and offer him a moose or some... Um, <laughs> a stuffed moose in, as compensation. A moose in his his. <laughs> uh, by far the most important stories in the 18th season were Full Circle, The Keeper of Traken and Logopolis. Uh, Matthew Waterhouse was introduced as Adric, the first male companion since Harry Sullivan left the TARDIS after the terror of the Zygons. Both Traken and Logopolis were fine stories, though Logopolis is not one of my favourite stories. The reappearance of the Master is something that Doctor Who fans have been asking for years, and John Nathan Turner finally decided to grant their wish. This served to allow the introduction of Nyssa of Traken and Tegan. Two characters that appear to hold a lot of promise. Logopolis, for all it's being heralded as Tom Baker's final Doctor Who foray, is not what I consider to be a classic. While the regeneration was interesting, with some similarities to the Master taking over Tremas's body, it wasn't anything special, though the flashback sequence was a fine, solid piece of writing. Still, as a Doctor's final story, there was something lacking in Logopolis, though I'm not quite sure what. I think everybody is expecting a sort of like an overblown RTD approach for uh, Tom Baker's Doctor, potentially, you know, throwing a kitchen sink and and everything else at it. I do like Legopolis, actually. I do like the tone of it and how it sort of sets up lots of companions in there and the master. I think it actually works quite well. The balancing of all the characters are actually pretty good. Maybe some of the science is a little bit um, bolted on. Certainly less indulgent than, say, Planet of the Spiders. There is a build-up to a a monumental event where 10th Planet is just basically he farts and changes war games nobody's really watching it by the end anyway actually if you think about planet of the spiders it is the classic series version of end of time isn't it really throw everything at it especially episode two but without the uh, castrati choir a much better ending yes mm. yeah although i think i think um some uh, i think the second episode aside which you know it only goes for 20 odd minutes so it's, it's not as if it's dragging you down i think the rest of it uh, of planet of the spiders is really good i think there's a theme running through it uh, that they take to the very end uh, I think it's a fine, you know, final performance from Pertwee. Um, as for Legopolis, um, I'm, I probably, I don't know, part of me thinks that Baker deserves something a bit more, as you said, overblown. Um, it, it is a bit too cerebral sometimes, uh, which t- tends to get in the way of, you know, some good storytelling. There are some pretty fine moments, you know, that handshake between the Doctor and the Master, I think, to end Episode 3, um, is, is, uh, is, is certainly a memorable image. Um, there might be one too many characters. I, I still bringing Sarah Sutton, you know, in as a permanent. There's too many people in the TARDIS, unfortunately, and it, it did show in the next series uh, with you know various people getting rested at certain points. Um, look, I like Logopolis. I probably like the novelization better, um, but yeah, it's a good story. Whether it's a, the best ending that could have been devised for Tom Baker, I'm still not 100 percent. Okay, so if you only had two companions, out of Adric and Nyssa and Adric and Tegan, which ones would you have continued with? Adric and Tegan brought a more antagonistic relationship that, you know, good for watching, I suppose. Mm. Um, and they're a study in contrasts, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Adric is more the, you know, the living computer and Tegan is really just the emotional could be the emotional centre of the of the of the of the show, mm. with the Doctor sort of riding herd over both of them. So, um, I, I just no no criticism of Sarah Sutton at all. I just think Nissa is a bit of a wet blanket. You think, Rob? Yeah. Look, if you're going to have two companions, 
then those two were the ones for me. I probably would have preferred one. Um, maybe Tegan for that because she would have contrasted better with Davo's portrayal mm. than with, say, Tom Baker. Um, but, yeah, what, do, what about you, mate? Same as you, Adric and Tegan. Uh, I think Adric and this uh, two scientists together be essentially the same as what was happening in uh, season 17 and 18. Two or three clever people getting together, travelling the universe, solving everything in less than three minutes. It needed that little contrast there between characters. It would have been interesting. And then uh, Adric blowing up at the end. And I think um, the reaction of Tegan, obviously, in her shock was pretty raw. But, of course, they completely lost that with Time Flight. But anyway. Well... Yeah, that's that's the classic series sometimes, isn't it? It is, it is. Now, speaking of Legopolis, uh, Stephen Flanagan from Coventry uh, says, I've just read in CT that Legopolis topped the season poll this year. I'm afraid I'm in a minority here because I found it highly unsatisfactory. There were just too many unanswered questions. Where did the watcher come from? How did the master know which police telephone box a doctor would measure? How did the cloister bell work? Most importantly of all, is the universe disintegrating? In fact, it is this lack of explanations that have irritated me throughout this otherwise excellent season. The worst offender was Warrior's Gate, but I also got tired of having to explain to people what a tachyon was <laughs> uh, during the Leisure Hive. David Saunders, the then head of, of the Dwas, basically says, If thinking that the Gopolis shouldn't have won the season poll, then welcome to the club. I enjoyed it, but the keeper of Trakan was the best in four years, in my opinion, since the talons of Wang Chiang. That's a pretty big call, isn't it, really? I like Keeper of Traken, but it's, um, well, I mean, if they're saying between Wet Talons and Keeper, well, the, obviously the, the holiest of holies is Horror of Fang Rock. Image of the Fendal yeah. is very good. Uh, what do you think is good between then and there, Mark? I think there is a lot of good, but not many standouts. Apart from those two you mentioned, City yes. of Death, obviously. True. Bones of Blood. I think there's a lot of good stuff, but nothing really sort of sticks out of the... Um, of, of that, that run, apart from potentially those two or three, four stories of, uh, of Williams's, to be honest with you. No, fair enough. Good call. Good call. All right, so the next one, Mark, is uh, David Guest from Southwick, which I imagine is somewhere south of somewhere. Um, for various reasons, I was unable to rejoin the Society until recently, having last been a member in 1976-77, and find that it has certainly changed for the better. One matter that irks me, though, is that I've read a lot lately about Pat Troughton being the so-called Forgotten Doctor. I would disagree and put my own favourite, John Pertwee, forward as a candidate for that role. John hasn't remained as hidden as Pat, yet when I see the former, I rarely immediately think of him as an ex-Doctor Who. Whilst talking about the forgotten, what about companions? To my mind, Mary Tam was the best for ages, yet she remained only for that awful Keter time season. What a pity. Well, I agree. Uh, I still consider most people to be overcautious with last season. Why has no one admitted that under John Nathan Turner the program has returned to its former glories? Finally, I'm not against change, normally, but I'm very sad to read of the new weeknight screenings. I would have thought that this was an ideal way to lose viewers. Surely fellow Dwass members would share my view that the last season was the best since early Baker. Give or take a few occasional greats like Ark in Space and Destiny of the Daleks. That's two stories, Mark, that I wouldn't have seen put up on a pedestal <laughs> together. <laughs> simpler times, Rob, simpler times. <laughs> Yet the Beeb waffles about flagging ratings, which I confess to finding difficult to believe. If I sound bitter, it's because I've hardly missed an episode since the beginning of Pat Troughton's time, and now, with attending college, I shan't be able to watch on weeknights. It's just too infuriating for words. Then I say, in brackets, except that he's written it all down in words and sent it to the Dwess. <laughs> like to say he was wrong. But obviously, we saw the massive increase in viewership. It started with Castro and... Um 
slowly declined and over that course of the year, but uh, definitely a vast improvement on, on the previous year. But definitely in the early 80s, Patrick Troughton was the forgotten doctor. I, I would disagree completely about John Pertwee, though. I mean, John Pertwee, he's obviously doing other things, Wizzle Gummage and Who Done It and that sort of stuff, so he probably wasn't out of the public uh, spotlight. But uh, I wouldn't say he was a no, forgotten doctor. Certainly not. Absolutely not. No. The next one's from Robert Hockenhull from Nantwich. Congratulations to John Nathan Turner and all concerned with the excellent 18th season. Possessed a much stronger dose of the traditional Doctor Who magic than any other Graham Williams seasons. Alien creatures were lacking in some episodes of this past season, I noticed. This was not a bad thing in such a story as Logopolis. However, I felt more could have been made of the monsters in State of Decay. Bats could have played a much larger part, and more use could have been made of the great vampire at the end. Ideas for the next season. How about a story set in America, and perhaps the anticipated reappearance of the Mandragora Helix in the 20th century? Such a story could herald the return of the Brigadier and units. I think the ending to State of Decay works perfectly fine with the sort of limited view of the great vampire that we see. Less is more sometimes, isn't that right, Mark? It'd be like the magma creature in Caves of Androzani. It was so crap they basically cut it completely out. I do like the big hand coming out and all of a sudden the rocket going in and going, <laughs> just sort of landing on him. As you said, Rob, less is more. What about his, uh, his ideas? Well, actually this guy's a bit of Nostradamus. The story's set in America. That was going to be the two Doctors, wasn't it? Mandragora Helix, that was in a Doctor Who magazine. And the return of the Brigadier and Unit. Actually, yes, in Battlefield, both of them. Yeah. Obviously, lots of people, lots of the same people, Mark, sent in lots of letters. And uh, another uh, letter here from Tim Munro, still of Huddersfield. Uh, obviously, hasn't moved in between letters. I think we can blame Dwapathy on the general decline that hit Doctor Who over the past few years, namely the Graham Williams period. Look at the disasters he caused. Canine. This is an example of a good idea gone wrong. I thought canine was a good, nay fantastic idea up to the Stones of Blood, after which I began to grow slowly fed up with the way he slowed down the whole pace of every story by hindering the Doctor and Romana. City of Death was the first time since canine's arrival that location filming in a big city was able to be done. Romana. She's been the worst assistant ever. Worst. Mary Tam did well considering the many slips the writers made. Lala Ward began well, but now looks to be struggling with the role. Bring back screaming Earth Girls, I say. Uh, the TARDIS, everybody's favourite box has degenerated into a cheap comedy act. Under Mr. Williams, she has been insulted, made to explode with silly noises, and given laughable brick walls. The invasion of time gets re-evaluated, Tim. It's not that bad. Um, I suppose we must be thankful that Mr. Williams is gone. Jesus. <laughs> In time, I could have seen the program move to the Situation Comedy budget. Look, he might be saying all that, saying the Williams era was a disaster, but look, a public perception point of view, look, the ratings were still pretty high, obviously artificially inflated for season 17, there's nothing else on, but yeah, maybe maybe uh, people watching it did start to think that Tom had been there too long and was getting all a little bit silly. But let's have a different view now, Rob. So this is from uh, Brian Dayhut from Clacton-on-Sea. He says, there is only one word to sum up the current season of Doctor Who, and that it is crap. I can in all honesty say the Leisure High and Megloss will join Invasion of Time as my worst three stories of all time. One of the million reasons why the season has been such a flop so far is a total lack of humour. Everybody is acting to their deaths, thus making everything so unbelievable and boring after the sheer brilliance of last season. The new one has been a miserable come down. Come back, Graham Williams. All is forgiven. And the editor comments was, uh, well, Brian, to judge from the tone of letters from your fellow members, yours is a minority point of view. <laughs> <laughs> what can you say? Obviously, the sea breeze at Clacton on Sea has just got to uh, Brian. Look, you know, I mean, 
At this point in the show's history, the the, the, the Graham Williams era is largely derided by fandom, isn't it? So it is it is interesting to see that. I mean, look, John Nathan Turner was, I suppose, embraced to a certain degree, and you know, sometimes fans are really too po faced and they, they they don't like that. You know, Doctor Who being funny or comedic or making you know sending itself up a little bit, like Tom Baker sort of off the leash did. Um, so they sort of a lot of them embrace that sort of sort of more serious somber tone. Um, but you know, uh, good on Brian for uh, you know being one out and, and, and saying exactly what he thought of the previous se- season, which had got uh, a lot of praise. Come back, Graham Williams, all is forgiven, eh? So the next letter is from Paul Ottaway from Devises. Devises, where is that, Mark? Surely that's in the UK somewhere. No idea. <laughs> no, clearly not in Wales. All right. It's a divisive uh, county, I think, Rob. So we'll move on from that. Fair enough. All right. So Peter Howe's incidental music is definitely a success, in my opinion. It is so different from Dudley Simpson's that it cannot really be compared with it. Nevertheless, I consider the music for The Leisure Hive to be as good as that for The Creature from the Pit, which was my favourite story of last season. Every story is someone's favourite story, isn't it, Mark? I've never heard of Creature from the Pit being the favourite story from last season, but let's keep going. In a world where there are people who admire death in heaven, then anything's possible, isn't that right, Mark? Bonkers. The acting of all concerned in the Leisure Hive must be praised, but the prize for best actor in this story must go to David Hager's Pangol. Yes. As a xenophobic, aggressive uh, young Argolan, he was truly magnificent. Admittedly, David Fisher's excellent script helped all of the cast, but the way Mr. Hague put across some of his lines was sheer magic. His performance was acting at its best. The Leisure Hive was, in my opinion, undoubtedly a success for John Nathan Turner, Christopher H. Bidmead, and the rest of the Doctor Who production office, and a pleasure for any really dedicated fan. If the other six stories of the 18th season are as good, then I shall once more be proud to say that I am a dedicated Doctor Who fan. Well done. Actually, David Haig's performance is very good in that, actually. I did watch David Haig, actually, a couple of months ago in a series called The Thin Blue Line. Is that a comedy thing? Okay. No, I never watched it, but good. Quite good, actually. But also, um, I think he was in Four Weddings and a Funeral as well. He's been in lots of stuff. He's actually in um, Thick of It as well. He was doing uh, scenes with um, Peter Capetta Capaldi's Malcolm Tucker and said, we're the Gallagher brothers of uh, British politics. I do remember that line. <laughs> do you reckon uh, Capaldi sidled up to him and said, can I have your autograph? He might as have. As a Doctor Who he fan? Might he might have. have. Although I believe David Haig doesn't like talking about the Leisure Hive. Really? Yeah, if people sort of camp outside asking for autographs of him as dressed as Pangol. No likey, apparently. No, fair enough. Well, I wouldn't either. Keep away. Keep away. The next letter is from uh, Keith Martin from Southport. He says, So we are finally to see a new Doctor in the next season. I must say that the choice of Peter Davison surprises me. I wasn't expecting anyone so young. However, on his record so far, I'm prepared to assume that Jonathan Turner knows what he's doing and will wait and see. Doing and to wait and see. Meanwhile, Tom Baker's more restrained and serious acting this year has for me redeemed much of the silliness of past years. And I now look back on his portrayal with greater fondness than ever before. They certainly would have been, wouldn't have been saying that about John Nathan Turner in a few years' time, would they, Mark? Just reading all this, I felt like I slipped into a parallel universe. <laughs> it's, it's all it's all praise. It is all praise. But, I mean, remember when um, Chibnall... Oh, hang on. Wait a sec. Was there a lot of praise for Chibnall when he came on board? I think there was a degree of trepidation, wasn't there? Everybody kept saying Cyberwoman. Yeah. I don't mind Cyberwoman, though. Don't stone me, but I don't mind it. Hello? Hello, we're recording. If anybody wants to apply for the new (laughs) (laughs) co-host. No, every opinion is valid, Rob. Even though it's completely bonkers. (laughs) 
Thank you for that. All right. One last one before we go. This is from uh, John Drake in Bradford. Now, is Bradford in the... UK, yes. Yeah, but is it in the <laughs> northwest? Is it near Birmingham? Isn't Bradford the place where the Daleks planted their bomb and Dalek invasion of Earth and were trying to propel the, propel the Earth around? I don't know, but look, anyone out there who knows where Bradford is... 42 to doomsday at gmail.com our twitter handle is at 42 to doomsday please clear up this 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 shocking lack of knowledge about english or british geography that i've got (laughs) i'm not much help i'm pretty good with with welsh landmarks but uh the rest of the uk basically is not the uk just london with a couple of counties as an appendages really that's what it is wow wow read the letter (laughs) are we still getting our submarines that's what i want to know We'll be getting the little yellow ones now, I think. <laughs> well, actually, just on that, have you you've seen you're a, you're a Beatles fan, you've yes. seen Yellow Submarine, haven't yes. you? I nearly freaked out watching that one Saturday night. Did it's you? just there's a there's a there's a scene where there's a big open plaza sort of thing, or they're in a large building, mm-hmm. and there's these tiny tiny figures. They're like you know silhouettes crossing this enormous, and that just it was like I dropped acid at the age of I don't know twenty. And, and lost my mind. It just freaked me out. I couldn't watch it. I, anyway. I haven't seen it in years. I must admit, they released the DVD about 20 years ago and put in um, uh, Hey Bulldog. Interestingly enough, the guy who voiced uh, Paul McCartney, because it wasn't them doing the voices, was... Um... David Haig? No, it wasn't David Haig, actually. It was uh, Jeff Hughes, who was Mr. Popplewick, Ultimate Foe. Ah. Or whatever it was called this week. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 100,000 BC, wasn't it? Uh <laughs> And John writes. John, <laughs> I'm writing this letter soon after hearing that Tom Baker is to leave the role of Doctor Who. Isn't it interesting that people refer to him, sorry, refer to the character as Doctor Who, not the Doctor? There's, there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting, yeah. At least 90% of the society's membership will no doubt be pleased to hear this news. Jeez. However, I am part of the remaining 10%. I feel Tom has contributed more to the program's popularity in his six years than in the previous three doctors years put together the last sentence will probably provoke acidic criticism from the hartnell diehards and the Troughton fanatics so much for being the forgotten doctor that the majority of the dwass members appear to be as i cannot recall one complimentary comment about tom baker's portrayal since at least early 1980 mm. many called for his resignation in 1979 but those of us who remain faithful to tom's characterization have seen the program rise to a new high in this present season but even now, some still watch an episode and pick out all the bad points, thus tearing to shreds the program they profess to like. Well, John, <laughs> welcome to fandom, sunshine. It doesn't get any better. <laughs> no, and it never will. Never will. So that, Mark, is letters for 1981. Lots of letters there, Rob. Do you think Tom Baker redeemed himself in season 18? Doing you know, these drag from the archives of this, around this particular time frame, 80-81, I mean, it does demonstrate that there's a lot of dislike for the approach taken during the Graham Williams era. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of abuse that seems to be hurled or heaped on Williams for the approach that he, in some ways, was forced to take. Uh, and in other cases, you know, circumstance in terms of a declining budget, uh, you know, sort of put upon him. Look, as I said earlier, you know, Doctor Who fans sometimes are too serious and they, and they want their show to reflect their, you know, their, their frowny, serious moods. Uh, so I suppose returning to a more serious or sombre take uh, would have appealed to quite a lot of them. I mean, the general audience obviously didn't come back after those, you know, artificial highs. 
Um, so maybe there's a vote of no confidence there in, in the series overall. But, I mean, you know, fandom, I suppose, in, in a large extent, got what they wanted in, in terms of a serious betrayal for, for Baker's final year. Yeah, I definitely think they clamped down on the jokes too much. I mean, what Tom was able to get through and the delivery was obviously a lot better. But maybe a couple of more uh, jokes would have been nice. But I, I think there was a sense of that the show definitely needed a change. And as I said before, it was happening from behind the scenes and uh, it was slowly working its way to the front of the camera. So uh, it was the end, but the moment has certainly been prepared for. So we'll be definitely doing another drag through the years, possibly 1982, Rob, to time with 40th anniversary of the debut of uh, The Fifth Doctor next year. Something to look forward to. So, Mark, we'll be back next month with a topic uh, that is as yet to be determined, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it'll be riveting. We like to uh, do things footloose and fancy-free here, so uh, we'll think of something. But yes, November, definitely doing our long-delayed top five master stories. And of course, lockdown. Be damned. We're doing that goddamn Christmas party. And I don't care how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it in person somehow. I look forward to that. And I look forward to speaking to you again, Mark. And likewise as well. But thank you very much for our listeners as well. Look forward to speaking to you next month. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.